0: A little bit later, maybe an hour later, he woke up crying and could only say,
1: the ice."
0: I hate that story, but it oh. happened. <sighs> I don't know about that one, guys. It doesn't sound plausible. I don't think I believe that one. Yeah, right.
1: Wait, it's kind
0: of late. Jake, who is that? Jake? Jake? Father. No, Jake!
2: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Blue Apron, The Great Courses Plus,
0: Eharmony movement watches and our contributors at patreon.com. Halloween has come and gone, friends, and with Thanksgiving barely out of the gate, the Christmas ads are already spilling out of our smartphones, laptops, and TVs. There's a time for that, we suppose, but that time, at least for us, has not arrived yet. We're not quite done with the spooky. After all, it's still fall, and we have a few more things to touch on before we put the legend of the black-eyed kids to bed. In the last part of our series, we shared some poignant personal experiences from two of our regular listeners along with an interview with Brian Bethel, whose late 90s encounter in Abilene, Texas has truly become legendary today. Tonight, we're lucky to have the author of the book, The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, Gary Michael Vasey, joining us from his home in the Czech Republic, which, from the ancient past to the present, has also been a home to the macabre. In addition to speaking with him, we'll be taking a look at the question that has yet to be answered with any satisfaction, what happens when you let them in, as well as tales of black-eyed adults. Our conclusions, if there are any to be had, will follow with our analysis and theories as to what they might be. So, before you're forced to spend time inhaling turkey and stuffing with Uncle Pete, whom you don't even really like that much, find a dark corner. Or a quiet road to drive at night. And click play. Welcome back to Astonishing
1: Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this
0: is Forrest Burgess. Perhaps we shall never discover what the black-eyed children truly are, or what they represent. But by all appearances... They are here to stay. Author David Weatherly from his book, The Black-Eyed Children. Join us tonight for the final part
1: of our series on Black-Eyed Kids, presented for your listening pleasure in stereo.
0: And we're back.
1: We have 77 people confirmed for our meetup here in Los Angeles on December 2nd at the Idle Hour Bar in North Hollywood.
0: And another 40-plus, quote-unquote, interested in attending, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. I'm already thinking about how I can hide in that giant fake barrel in the front of the building. Uh, that's just one big open room, so. I don't... <laughs> really? <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I, I can't hide there? No, I don't think you can hide there. Right. Don't worry. It's going to be a lot of fun. Rich Haddam's going to be joining us as well as possibly Cindy Viegas, who shared that time-slip Tijuana
0: black-eyed kid story from our last episode. We're also going to have a trivia contest where we'll be giving away several gift cards for free movement watches to people who really know the show, unlike us who forget everything about each show as soon as we're done with them. Yeah, we got to get some more transcriptions. <laughs> I, could, I need to look up what we said. No, 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 no. Ne- <laughs> never look back. That's what i say. Well, it's going to be a blast
1: and we're looking forward to it. One quick note, the Idle Hour bar is restricted to folks 21 and over. So
0: if you're under 21, you won't be able to attend this particular meetup. However, we're going to do another Southern California meetup in the first half of 2018 and we'll be sure there are no age restrictions on that one. A quick note, too, for our patrons at Patreon.com. Our good friends over at the
1: Bohemican Podcast, Travis J. Dow and Pete Coleman, went back to Hoska Castle in person just a few days ago, right before Halloween, and they shot a great
0: video both there and at the famous Sedlick Ossuary, also known as the Bone Church. And in an act of kindness, they're letting us post it for our patrons now, several months before they add it to their own YouTube channel. So head over there and check that out at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. And in our last bit of housekeeping tonight,
1: we wanted to let you know how excited we are about next week's show. Those of you that are longtime fans may remember almost exactly three years ago, we rolled out one of our first historic mystery series on the disappearance of Amelia
0: Earhart. Yeah, that series was one of our first deep dives, and it was particularly thrilling because we both learned about some hypotheses we were not familiar with prior to our research, and it gave us the rare opportunity to select one of them as a likely major factor in her disappearance. Yeah,
1: we don't always get to say something like that, and who knows, maybe we bet on the wrong horse, but we found that a lot of the evidence associated with one of them in particular was extremely compelling, and we made our case for why we believe that. It turns out we were only just scratching the surface. Almost as soon as we posted that series, it was heard by the folks over at the Chasing Earhart Project, which is responsible not only for a regular podcast dedicated to Amelia, but a forthcoming documentary as well. Project creator Chris Williamson and his producer and better half, Vanessa Williamson, are powerhouses of research when it comes to Amelia Earhart. And let's just say that some of the stuff they've uncovered in the many years they've been dedicated to this project is mind-blowing.
0: They're interviewing well over 100 folks associated with researching not only what happened to Amelia, but how she lived and the inspiration that she is even today. And we're fortunate to have been invited to sit on a panel with some of those experts in her hometown of Atchison, Kansas in July of 2018 that will be focused on her life, times, and vanishing. More details
1: on that next week, but for now, if you need a refresher course on the big picture of her disappearance, find our old shows and listen to our series on her, which is in episodes four and five. Then next week, you'll be all set for our super fascinating in-studio interview with Chris that goes deep on not only some of the existing theories about her disappearance, but also reveals some startling new ones that they've uncovered at Chasing Earhart. Oh, and yes, we will talk about the picture from the History Channel special, Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence. There's so much more to that
0: photo than you think. Boy, I'll say. But wow, episode four, you sure you really want to do that? It's like watching the first two episodes of Seinfeld or The Simpsons. You know, really rough. We weren't as tight as we are now, if you can call it three-hour <laughs> episode tight. But the info was solid,
1: man. <laughs> <laughs> Very well, then. So tonight we're taking our last looks at the black-eyed children. And one of the things we decided to start out with was an interview we did with author Gary Michael Vasey. He wrote a book called The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, which we've mentioned a few times before. Actually, he's very prolific. He's written dozens of books on all kinds of paranormal topics. You'll hear him say in the interview, it's around 35 or 36 books, I think.
0: <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of work. Some of them are shorter work, but they're e-books. And it's fun stuff to read if you can get your hands on it. <laughs> he's almost a polymath because he's 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 a musician, and he puts out uh, recorded tracks of his own music, Yes, in addition to writing software for commodities brokers. Yeah, he
1: he does about 10 things more than I do. And I think he has a doctorate in geology. Oh, he does. You'll hear him talk about it, but there's a doctorate in there somewhere. So, well, well
0: when, you, when you hear the interview, he just sounds like he can do all those things in yes, his sleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Yet another guy on the show who's smarter than both of us. Uh, so, combined and plus
1: 10 more people. Here's the thing. We wanted to get his perspective because like David Weatherly and others who are experts on the topic of black-eyed kids, he has collected a ton of stories about them. And uh, th- it's been the, his book that we've been reading a lot of those experiences from and actually are going to share a few more from tonight. And in addition to that, he has had some really strange personal experiences, too. One of the questions that Forrest had me put to him during our interview was, had he experienced anything unusual lately? And he tells a really fun little uh, three-minute story there that we had Ryan add some sound
0: design to. So we hope you'll enjoy that story. Yeah, talk about stranger on a train. Well, let's get to it.
2: I'm Gary Vasey. I I write under the name G. Michael Vasey because I write strange books about ghosts and magic and the occult and supernatural. And I wanted at one time to keep my professional life separate from my writing life. Of course, these days, Google sort of uh, busted me. So everybody knows who I really am, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) despite my best efforts to remain anonymous. I, I do write under a couple of other names, Sam White and a couple of other names for various types of books. I've been writing for about 10 years. I've been blogging for about 10 years as well for a variety of different blogs. I'm interested in The nature of reality, how we perceive reality, what reality is, whether we can manipulate reality, create our own reality. And so the supernatural is an element or an aspect of it's sort of reality it's paranormal reality, I guess. And um, so I've been interested in that for a while. I grew up in Yorkshire, England, in a city called Hull. It's quite a small city. And uh, I spent my early years seeing things, hearing things that other people didn't seem to. Which got me into a little trouble at school with friends and things who thought I was a bit of a nutcase. I guess I'm laughing now <laughs> at
1: them. Um, well, you're very uh, prolific. I mean, I noticed just on your one website anyway, you have 29 books up there. It's amazing.
2: At least, um, probably 35 in oh. total. A lot of them, are very short, you know. I mean, um, this year I've been quite busy with some personal issues and bits and pieces, and um, just haven't had the time really to put some long books together so i've been issuing a whole series of short books and uh, just stitch them all together as a sort of super bumper compilation in uh, paperback and kindle format i'm working on another book right now but um, not making a lot of progress at the moment i'm researching The sort of old hag, the sleep paralysis. uh, Yes,
1: we've done episodes on that. Not specifically the old hag, but (laughs) it was a prominent part of a show we did a while back, actually. It's a fascinating thing. That's great. Yeah, I think that's a
2: great example of where reality, um, the sort of border of of reality and uh, what's going on in our minds. And um, people like to say it's just sleep paralysis and it's not real. Well, I had an experience on the train to Germany that I wrote about on my uh, website, and I swear it was real because I could
1: still see the thing after I woke up. You definitely seem to be more aware of these kinds of things happening in your life than a lot of people are.
2: Like I say, I grew up, we had a little poltergeist outbreak in my house, and um, I couldn't sleep without lights on for a long, long time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I still leave the lights on sometimes. I mean, I'm not frightened anymore, but uh, I can be shocked. I can't jump, just like everybody else. Do you have siblings? Uh, I do. I have two younger brothers. One of them certainly shared an experience with me when we were kids. I woke up one night in a shared bedroom, and um, my father was quite a handyman. He built a whole bunch of wardrobes, cupboards with a desk in the middle. And I woke up and saw this ghostly white figure sitting at the desk with a quill and ink, a cavalier's hat, and screened the house down and my brother woke up and saw it float out the window so you know he did share in a little bit of my um, interesting experiences but to my knowledge I'm the only one that has these experiences my father did my father was also sensitive saw things um, he helped me when he was alive a little bit especially when he, when I was growing up but as I say, I grew up with this stuff, and I eventually decided that uh, you got to confront your fear. So I, um, it's an interesting story. I decided to join a school of occult science. It's kind of like, you know, Harry Potter-esque school of wizardry, but a real one in the UK. And I did a, a five-year course of meditation around Kabbalah and magic and stuff like this, a lot of meditation and visualization. At the end of that course, you know, I, I came to some conclusions about uh, myself, my fears, my paranoia, what was going on inside of me. I I came to know myself a little better, which is the whole point of magic, believe it or not, is to know yourself. And um, that's where the first book came from, because somebody said to me in the school, you know, why don't you write a book about your experiences? So I sat down and I wrote a book, I think it came out back into 2005, called Inner Journeys, Explorations of the Soul, and it kind of describes my growing up. With ghosts and poltergeists and strange activities, and being, you know, laughed at in school for talking about this stuff, and going on geology field trips, and drawing circles around my bed in soap because I was scared of, of what was in the room and trying to protect myself, and then sort of growing up, getting married, and having kids, and all the usual stuff you do, getting on with the career, and then coming back to it, going to the school, meditating, and uh, sort of coming to some conclusions about how we create our own, our own realities and um, things that I was seeing. I, was, I, I always say I was lit up like a Christmas tree on the other side, so no wonder people were, or entities were giving me some issues because they could see me and they could see the fear, and that's what they live on, you know, they live on the fear.
1: We have a guest on the show frequently. His name's Richard Haddam. He's a screenwriter, and he wrote the screenplay for the adaptation of The Mothman Prophecies. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's a good friend of the show and he wrote a a line in that movie that I always think about as a dialogue line. It's real simple, but it's just you noticed them. And they noticed that you noticed them yes it's that kind of thing it sounds like you're talking about that y- it is yes yeah.
2: and so these days i don't allow myself to notice them and they don't notice me usually so you know even though i write about this stuff and uh you know get people to submit stories and tell me their experiences and collect all
1: of these experiences okay. touch what anyway so far before you got involved in this, what was your day job and your, uh, your work before? And are you still doing that? I'm still doing it. My
2: partner in Houston, Texas, I lived in Texas for 20 years. And um, I, I'm in the commodities, basically, commodity trading, risk management. We're analysts. We run a small firm of analysts looking at software solutions and solutions in general, to some of the business issues in commodity markets. And I've been doing that for about 17 years already. And prior to that, I'm a trained PhD geologist. So I continue to do that. That's where my main income comes from. This is sort of a hobby um, on the side that I have some fond hopes, might help me through retirement eventually, but you never know.
1: <laughs> so what brought you to the Czech Republic?
2: Usual, you know, I fell in love with a woman and um, I, I moved <laughs> from Texas to the Czech Republic. Uh, she and I are now no longer. Um, oh, okay. I only have a 10-year daughter and uh, obviously I wanted to be with her and I have, um, I have become quite familiar with the Czech country and, and kind of like it here. But I, I do, I am missing the US at the moment. I mean, I'm British, but I spent 20 years in Texas. Sure. And I do have the passport and I do pay the, I do file my IRS tax returns every year. Sure. And I do holiday in Florida and visit my, I have three adult sons in Texas, but I haven't been for a while and I'm, I'm missing it badly.
1: You're a man of the world, it seems like.
2: I, have, I do have a book out on the Czech Republic, the most haunted country in the world, question mark. Oh, great. Um, and I, I do collect stories of the Czech Republic prior
1: bring the others. Well, I, I hope to get there in person someday. What I'd like to talk to you about today is what our current series is about. I know you have a lot of knowledge in a lot of different areas, but I wanted specifically to focus a little bit on the black-eyed kids or black-eyed children mm-hmm. phenomenon. And uh, I know yeah. you had a book out on it, which I have read, my co-host and I both had come up with a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you about, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Go ahead. We're going to just dive right into some of the logistics, the mechanics of Black Eyed Kids. With your permission, thank you for giving that to us. We read some of the accounts that came in to Mm. our listeners in part one of this series. And it's such a privilege to have you actually on the show. So thank you again for that. My pleasure. I guess I just want to talk about why do you think that these beings, why do you think their eyes are black? What do you think that's about?
2: Yeah, well, that's a good one. If you look at sort of the mythology of demons and demonic creatures and fairy tale myth and legend, what you find is that black eyes are a fairly common phenomena, right? So, for example, I guess uh, in North America, there's a thing called Otcom, which is a dark power that could take over children and mate with women who would then give birth to pale-colored, pale-skinned, limpid, sort of black-eyed kids that were fairly evil. So
1: We mentioned them, in and uh, you haven't heard it because it hasn't posted yet as of this interview, but we actually did mention them in part one of this series.
2: Uh-huh. And then there's the, the archer eye, or however that's pronounced, which are the hill fairies that have black eyes as well. So I think it, wherever you go in the world, if you look at myth and legend, demonic entities, or the boogeyman probably is a better way to describe it, they usually have black eyes, or are said to have black eyes. And I think if you even look at sort of like Hollywood movies, um, they always try to do a demonic possession and stuff like that with black eyes. It's become like the marker for something's not quite right with this person. They have black eyes. It's a marker of possession. It's a marker of something evil. And the interesting thing is, if you have read the first book that I, I, I think that's the one you're alluding to, I quote a lady who wrote the book called Eyes of a Sociopath. And she writes about a husband in a fit of rage. And this is not a supernatural paranormal book. This is a book about her relationship with the husband and, and sort of the psychology of anger. And she describes how a husband, when he got into a fit of rage, his eyes would turn black. So, again, you have this psychological sort of implication of black eyes or dark eyes and rage and anger and all those bad things i think i think the black eyes really do and it depends whether you believe they exist or it's just an urban myth but i think the black eyes are meant to denote demonic lacking in in normal human characteristics they're otherworldly some people have obviously said they're aliens other people think they're demons it doesn't really matter the fact is is the black eyes denote this Otherworldly, sinister, evil, frightening sort of um, characteristic of these kids and adults and, and monsters throughout human history, in fact. So, to me, that's what the black eyes mean. Now, you could go even further because in the book, we got a, a story or two that introduced a thing called the white eyed kids, and the white eyed kids seem to have some kind of power over the black eyed kids. That sort of got me into another line of research, which is that uh, if you look at the colors, the demonic hierarchy. Black is a low-level demon. White is a high-level demon, so it seems like also them, if you think of them as demonic entities, if that's what you want to see them as, then perhaps it indicates a level of, of darkness or evilness or demonicness, if you
1: want. Is a high-level demon a nice guy or still a demon? You know, it depends on what you think a demon
2: is. I mean, there are some people in, in my walk of life on the sort of side, of more, on the more magical side of things, that would view a demon as just a power. And they can be um, evil and not evil. They can be anything in between. They can be just, they don't care. Or they're deliberately evil or they're not. Believe it or not, since we're talking about, we mentioned earlier um, the old hag and, and stuff like that, succubi and incubi which are supposed to be demons that visit you nocturnally and have a sexual encounter with you or you with them. There's actually a website that I discovered in researching my new book where um, the guy claims that these are actually not demons at all, that they're some kind of high-level spiritual entity that was introduced to humanity to teach us about our own sexuality. And he even has a seven-lesson guide on how to attract them into your life. God forbid. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> doesn't seem like a great idea.
2: but <laughs> So I think it is about how you see reality. And I've come to this conclusion, and maybe I'm wrong, but this is my conclusion. We really create our own reality. We look at life through a lens, and that lens is colored by how we were raised, where we were raised, the culture, the society, the religion, the schools we went to, the people we mixed with, and, and what life experiences we've had. You know, if you look with a lens that says, you know, there are evil creatures that are out to condemn us to hell, then there are. If you look at the world through a lens that says codswallop and nonsense, there's no such thing as any spiritual creature. This is a physical manifestation. And when we're dead, we're dead. Then probably that's what it is, because I think you see what you want to see and you create that reality. What the black-eyed kids actually are is beyond me, but my best guess, if you've read the book, you know is I I do believe they are demonic entities of some kind, and I think they've been with us forever and a day. I don't think that this is a story that dates back to Brian Bethel in 1998. Um, I think the Brian Bethel story took off because that was sort of the time when the internet started to basically build, and that was a mechanism for um, putting a story out or an experience out and having it take off, you know, become viral. So I think the black-eyed kids in one form or another or black-eyed people have been around and for as long as we have, and if not longer, and they are some kind of uh, spiritual entity which one would determine to be demonic, yes.
1: And do you think that the demonic nature of them contributes to the idea that they can't enter without permission? What do you think that's about?
2: Again, there's a whole history of you have to grant something permission to uh, basically possess you. And this has been echoed, you know, again, by Hollywood and TV, The Vampire Slayer. That's a feature of that show where to be possessed, you have to grant permission. And by saying, can we come in? Can we come in to use the telegraph? Can we come in to use the telephone? Can we get into your car? We need to go somewhere. When you say yes, I think you are granting them permission. That's for sure. You're granting them permission to cross the threshold. You're granting them permission to do something with you. And I would advise anybody listening tonight that should they have an experience with a black-eyed kid or any other sort of phenomena that seems demonic, if it asks to enter or asks permission, the answer is no, because you are sacrosanct and you should never give permission to anything to enter.
0: Thanksgiving is coming up fast here in the U.S., and once again, Blue Apron has got your back, helping you out in the kitchen with your holiday meals. Blue Apron really is more than just a food delivery service. The fresh
1: ingredients and the delicious and inventive recipes are worth the price alone, but they offer so much more, like top-notch cookware, great wines, and showing you how to improve your kitchen skills. It's just about everything you can think of to start cooking and dining better. So what are they doing for Thanksgiving?
0: Well, for the week of November 20th, instead of getting your regularly chosen meals, you can choose to get two to three different meals that make great Thanksgiving side dishes in addition to your main courses, like kale and ricotta tarts, roasted fall vegetable and farro salad, or butternut squash pasta with kale and brown butter walnuts. Hmm, that does sound better than my
1: old side dish standby, the green bean casserole, (laughs) and a lot more impressive. But that's something to keep in mind, and even something a lot of us who've been subscribing to Blue Apron for a while now forget. Blue Apron is so flexible. If you don't like what's coming up on the weekly menus, you can go on the website and change it up because each week's menus have several options to choose from. And
0: something else to remember about Blue Apron's flexibility is that there's no weekly commitment. So if you're going out of town or you're going to be preparing other holiday dishes that week, you can choose to skip a delivery and pick it back up when you're ready. With the holidays approaching, it's a great time to finally see
1: why Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country.
0: Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first order with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You will love how good it feels
1: and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com astonishing. Blue Apron, a better
0: way to cook. Hi, I'm Isaiah, and if you haven't subscribed to Astonishing Legends yet, I think you... Okay, let's get back to the show.
1: In all your research that you've done and the stories you've come across, do you feel like there's a, I know it's outside of the United States, but do you feel like there's a geographical prominence to where these stories are coming from? And do you think that's tied to, based on what you're saying about creating your own reality, do you think that's tied to certain cultures or internet access in particular or anything like that? Do you see patterns in where these events are focused?
2: it would be hard to deny a link because the, the number of stories that are american in origin and specifically southern state you know texas in particular it's too big a number compared to the others now as you rightly say i did find stories in france i did find stories in the uk in australia south africa and other places But the stories there would often have some element that was a little different, a little out of character with the Black Eyed Kid story, the sort of murder operandi that you see in these stories. And even some of the ones in the UK that were were more aligned with that murder operandi were actually experiences of Americans living in the UK. And so you're sort of forced to conclude that there is an aspect of how things manifest is a cultural phenomenon. It's this looking through the lenses again. And I I do think that this sort of traditional Beck story, Kids on the Doorstep, is a a cultural and American sort of story. However, these black-eyed beings certainly exist throughout the globe. And you can see this in history, mythology, and in some of the stories. I mean, if you look at the UK... The black-eyed kid stories are, are there and they took off uh, relatively recently around the, the Canot Chase black-eyed kid. But when you look at the Canot Chase story and, and some of the others that got covered in the British media, there's a bit of a difference because this is quite clearly an apparition. This is not a physical child showing up on the doorstep. This is the apparition of a black-eyed child in a forest. However, some of the same elements exist a state of absolute fear as if in threat of losing your very soul. The black eyes, obviously. The wanting help, wanting assistance, asking permission to do something. So elements of the story are there, but the story has some major differences. And that's what I, I thought I saw anyway. I'm only too aware I'm looking through my own lens, but that's what I thought I saw. And if you read the stories, you know, I wonder, if did you come to the same sort of conclusion that I did? Because plainly, there are some differences in in that murder operandi.
1: Yeah, I mean, in looking at the book and reading a lot of the stories, it did seem, you know, there was common ground. Because we also solicited our listeners for stories in, our, yeah. in an episode leading up to this series. And we didn't know how many we'd get. We only did it a week before we did part one of this series. But four or five came in, and yep. a couple of them are really frightening. I think it's interesting what you're saying about the lens and how people experience, and maybe the experiencer is having some sort of influence over how the event plays out.
2: Yep, that's very much how I see it. And of course, not only do you have the black-eyed kids, but you have the black-eyed people, uh, the adults. And a lot of times, the black-eyed people are sort of transients. And several stories, I, I put out two books and a compilation of them. So in the second book, there's a whole bunch more stories that were submitted later that didn't get in the first book, and I can't recall which book the stories are in, but I recall that uh, Walmart seemed to be a a particular location to have (laughs) run-ins with black-eyed kids and black-eyed people, which I thought was pretty bizarre. You know, if you want a black-eyed kid experience, then maybe Walmart is a place to try, because it seems a, a high proportion of some of these incidents Experiences took place in a Walmart sort of scenario. I recall one of the stories where the person was walking down the street, noticed this uh, transient person, and started to give them a, a wide berth. And um, the person spoke to them, calling them by their first name. And you can imagine you're walking down the street, minding your own business, you see a homeless, what looks to be a homeless person. For one reason or another, you decide to cross the road or something, and and that person says, hey, Gary.
1: Right. That was the Michaela story, right? I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see they have black
2: eyes, even worse. So I think, again, this Walmart connection is interesting and worthy of more explanation and exploration because... I would say 30% of the stories were set somewhere around Walmart.
1: Well, with regard to the stories, let me ask you this question. I think there's no doubt that some of these are definitely fictional writings by amateur writers who are participating in the No Sleep community and Creepypasta, which we talked about on part one and that sort of thing. Do you have a sense of how, when things come into you, obviously you're getting a lot of submissions at your different websites because you have the books and everything. Do you get a sense for when it feels like somebody is has made something up versus a real story? How do you know what seems real and what doesn't?
2: Unfortunately, there's not really any way to tell. I mean, some of the stories sound so outlandish and ridiculous that we don't publish them, obviously, because they just seem... But having had my own experiences, I can tell you that Many of them were ridiculous and outlandish, and no one would believe them. So it's a really tough call. Um, You're getting submissions. You don't know um, who the person is, what kind of mental health they're in. But on the other hand, I'm collecting the stories. And the stories themselves are of interest, whether they are absolute truth, total fiction, or something in the middle. And I think a lot of the time you're looking at something in the middle because, as we all know, memory is a peculiar thing. You have an experience and then you try to recall it and you can embellish it in certain ways subconsciously without even knowing that you're doing it. Um, I think anybody who deals with crime scenes and things like this knows this is a fact. I I always think all stories are kind of half-truth, half-embellishment by the person. And again, I think it speaks to the lens and the psychology of the person. But all of these stories are interesting because at some level, unless it's an out and out fiction piece written, as you say, for Reddit, there's some core experience that took place there that is part of the human experience. And it's an interesting phenomenon. It's part of reality that we live in. So I can't, you know, unfortunately, I hate to disappoint your listeners and my readers, but I can't guarantee that all the stories are true. Sure. There's no way to do that. Even if I met the person and interviewed them, I still can't guarantee that their experience was real. But we do try to filter out the, the more obvious or, or far-fetched ones. But again, as I said, some of my experiences you would consider to be very far-fetched. Um, so how do you know? You just don't. The thing is, is that this is obviously a, a phenomenon that a lot of people have experienced and are still experiencing. And the, the question is why?
1: Have you heard of any stories of anyone actually having a physical struggle with one of these beings? It seems like in all these stories, they're, no. you know, they're, at, they're asking to come in, they're knocking on the door. You no. let them in or you don't, but no, nothing. No physical contact.
2: I mean, no, part of the murder operandi, if you want, is that these kids or, or even adults are sort of docile. They're not physically threatening. They don't resort to violence. They don't threaten violence. Their very presence is enough to cause the fear of God. And people at first don't know what to do with this feeling of fear, this terrified feeling that they have. They don't know why they feel so terrified. It's only later when they notice the black eyes that they can place that feeling of fear. But they, they basically stand there. They're small kids. They're fairly hypnotic, calm, repetitive voice. They kind of speak in, in a strange, old-fashioned English. One of the stories asking to use the telegraph yes, uh, rather than telephone. They don't get excited. It must be very terrifying to confront this. And they have an e- effect on electrical items. So there's electrical disturbances. Sometimes there's a, a loss of time element to the story. They lost five minutes of time, woke up a bit later in a different sort of scenario, So, you know, did they let them in and something happened to them and that memory has been erased, um, possibility. There are also very few stories of actual people who let them in. And uh, the one or two that there are are very disturbing. In the one instance, I think um, the couple let the kids in and um, there were animal behavior, electrical disturbances. Um, I think one of the pets was found dead. Another pet ran off. and The husband started having all, all kinds of medical problems. And then the wife did. And in another example, a neighboring family completely disappeared. When you think that, you know, 90,000 American people are missing at any particular point in time, you do wonder whether some of these people that go missing are related to this kind of phenomena or not, can't prove it. With so many experiences, with so many incidents, how come so few people actually say we let them in, Yeah
1: with regard to the adults and the appearance of older people with black eyes do you think that there's a connection between the black-eyed kids and the phenomenon of men in black or what people you know shadow people do you think that all of that stuff works together or do you think that those are separate? No, i think, I think they're
2: separate and different phenomena i think shadow okay. people are different and the men in black i think are different i, I think these black-eyed kids black-eyed ad, adults are a, a separate phenomena now it's interesting Because I also write a a column, Paranormal Corner, for a a magazine called the Western Magazine, which is written by a publisher of Western novels, would you believe? Okay. I just wrote an article recently about the Highgate vampire, which I know is off topic. But I then wrote a piece for the Westerner just last night, and um, I think it's kind of relevant because – I was looking at the Highgate Vampire, which I think is an urban legend. I mean, basically, Highgate Cemetery is a horrific place. Uh, Just exactly imagine a London Victorian cemetery to be, especially in the late 1960s, 70s, when it was overgrown and, and tombs were open and there was young kids running around with graffiti and vandalism and all this kind of stuff. And then one guy claimed that he'd seen an apparition. And he wrote into the local newspaper, and he asked in his letter, "Has anybody else seen anything?" And a whole bunch of responses came in, and the local newspaper ran it. And then some other guy suddenly decided to enter the scene, and he says, "Well, yeah, this is a Romanian, a royal Romanian that was brought here in the seventeenth, eighteenth century. He was buried in Highgate, and satanic activities woke him up, and he's a vampire." And he took all the elements out of the famous, you know, Stoker novel, sure. and. Very obviously sir. So, right? But before you knew it, this hit the national media, then they were both interviewed on the TV. There was uh, hundreds of people showed up at the cemetery with, armed with holy water and wooden stakes and goodness knows what for police. There was mass hysteria. And these two gentlemen sort of engaged in a almost a battle of who could outdo each other. One said that, you know, part of the evidence for the vampire was that there was a suspicious number of dead foxes hanging around in the cemetery. That their death couldn't be explained. The other guy says, yeah, and they've, you know, they've had the blood sucked from them. And so they built on and built on and built on and built on. And before you know it, this thing's got a life of its own. Now, if you look at magic, and if you look at advertising, and the two things are very intimately related, we think of things as thought forms. So when you think of something, you give it form in the astral. And if you think about it and imagine it long enough and hard enough, it can manifest itself in the physical plane. That's the, the whole idea of magic. And that's how the advertisers also, you know, get you to buy things, they get you to manifest something. And there's also this concept of sort of like a group thought form, which is if you get a 1000 people all thinking about the same thing at the same time, then it becomes an even more powerful thought form and its manifestation into reality happens faster. And so I was arguing that in fact, there was never any highgate vampire, there was just an apparition to start this off, and these two guys and all the media hype and all the stuff that happened subsequently created this urban myth, this urban legend of the Highgate vampire. But hang on a minute, because all those people believed in it, perhaps they actually created a vampire. And this is sort of an analogy for the what's called an urban myth of the black-eyed kids. Is it possible that by Brian Bethel publishing a story in 1998 on a, on a computerized mailing list and starting to get a response and then... Other people like myself and David Weatherly and other people stepping in and writing books and collecting stories, you know, are we actually helping people create reality which has black-eyed kids in it? And I think that's a fascinating sort of way to look at things.
1: You know, I agree. And I watched a seminar actually on on Jim Harold's website with Weatherly where he talks about that specifically as it relates to the ghost of Chloe with the Myrtles Plantation, which mm-hmm. th- maybe this is a story you already know, but he posits the same theory because he suggested that Chloe – it's a known fact that Chloe didn't exist. She was a slave that was uh, murdered, I guess. And But then they have a photo of her, this famous photo of this ghost that matches this manifestation of Chloe. And he was positing that it was because so many people believed in it, even though they've proven that, that this particular slave never existed it's yeah. definitely a fascinating idea, and it's something that we've talked about on our show before, too, just the idea of the tulpa or something being manifested from a lot of people believing in it. It's, which means that we're contributing to it right now. <laughs> exactly.
2: And the other thing that I always like to leave people with when talking about black-eyed kids is that they say that once you know about them, you meet them. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Frankly, I am a, more than a little bit concerned about that, hoping our listeners don't get mad at us about it. Well, before I let you go, let me just ask you a couple of quick questions, just a yep, final questions here. One thing is, are you seeing any trends in the paranormal these days? Anything new, anything that we should be concerned about?
2: No, I think the trend is greater interest. And in of itself, I think that's indicative of what's happening to society. You know, the, the role of social media, internet communication, the whole idea that more and more people are interested in paranormal. I mean, there's an author and an occultist in Northeast USA called Mark Stavish, who runs the Institute of Hermetic Studies, and he's written quite a lot on this topic and given a few speeches, and you can actually get one on YouTube if you look at Mark Stavish where he talks about the rising interest in paranormal and he sort of links it to, you know, society and also he links it to advertising and the consumer society and sort of the great mind control thing. But it's interesting that to me that when I was growing up and experiencing these things, I'd have a hard time getting a book on Ghosts at the local library people didn't really talk about it. There were groups of usually older people that would meet called the Church for Spiritual and Psychical Research or something that I was aware of. But it was very difficult to actually find any real information, any information about hermetics or Kabbalah or magic as well. I mean, now I don't know how many paranormal investigation shows there are on American TV, but I've got to guess it's more than five or six simultaneously. And I just, earlier this afternoon, I was watching Lucifer, you know, the, um, the series, yes. of which I, I think is absolutely brilliant, by the way. and I, I love it. I've become addicted to that series. <laughs> and it just seems to me that there is a danger to this, though, which is that if we really create our own reality, and a bunch of people thinking the same thing can actually manifest something then what on earth is it that we're manifesting?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that is fascinating. And it's funny what you just said about more interest in it. I read an article just, I think it was late last night when I was trying to go to sleep, but the headline of the article is, Why Millennials Are Ditching Religion for Witchcraft and Astrology. Mm-hmm. And MarketWatch.com published this story. Yeah, yeah, They're blaming it on uh, tumultuous politics and that sort of things. Articles by Carrie Paul, K-A-R-I-P-A-U-L. But it's a fascinating article about how the millennial generation is embracing all that kind of thing, you know? It definitely seems like it's a a little bit of a sea change in terms of spirituality.
2: Yes, absolutely, but I became a Catholic for a while as an adult because my first wife was an Irish Catholic, and um, out of respect, I became a Catholic, and I didn't follow through necessarily. But in recent months, I found myself going to Mass more often I mean, I I, can't, I don't take communion or anything. I just pop along for the pleasure of it, the peace and and the, the feeling, the spiritual feeling that you get from it. And it reminded me that, you know, it's a deeply mystical, magical experience in and it itself. You, I can imagine that there is an appeal to the pagan side, but um, let's not forget, the original church has it all too, you know. I mean, when, in the Roman Catholic Mass, when that bell rings and the priest holds up the wafer of bread, a miracle took place called transubstantiation, in which... At least in the mind of the priest and the mind of the congregation, that bread was turned into the physical body of Christ, the Son of God. That's an act of magic. It's always been an act of magic. And it doesn't worry me that people explore their spirituality, but it worries me that people, that the traditional church has somehow lost its way offering that magical, spiritual, esoteric view of the world, yeah? Do you follow what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. It is magic too. You know, it, it, it is a magical, spiritual, highly energetic thing. And, you, you know, prayer is, you know, I'm, I'm not on a bend here to convert anybody. Pray to what, whoever and whatever you want. But prayer is a phenomenally powerful tool in the human kit bag to get through life, as is visualization. Prayer and visualization are interrelated and What do the top athletic coaches get paid for? They get paid for helping their athletes visualize their performance improvement, i.e., they pray to perform.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. Well, I'm going to let you go. but I did have one last question for you. Uh, What is the latest strange thing that's happened to you personally?
2: Well, the latest uh, was that on the train. And um, I was quite shocked and surprised because nothing much has happened to me in a long, long time. You know, living in Central Europe, I had a presentation to make in Frankfurt. And so I thought, well, you know, flying from here to Frankfurt's like 50 minutes. It's like go well Houston, Dallas or something like that. So I thought, well, I'm sick and tired of waiting two hours at the airport and going through security. I'll take the overnight train. I'll get a sleeper. So I, I got a sleeper on the train there and back. And I was really looking forward to this, you know, first class sleeper. I got on this train in Vienna, beautiful bed and all the kit bag, of all the stuff, you know, the slippers, breakfast on a tray in the morning. That um, sounds great. Really, yeah, it was <laughs> really, really great. Yeah. So I thought, well, it's 11 o'clock, you know, we'll be arriving around six. I think I'll just jump straight into the sack. So I got into bed and, and um, I fell asleep, rocked by the train. And um, at some point I became aware that there was a heaviness on, on my feet, you know, and I tried to move and I couldn't move. And I opened my eyes and I saw the cloud of smoke that had eyes and a a face drift over to me. I was terrified, I'll admit. I was terrified. I was trying to scream. I could hear the people in the carriage next door laughing and jerking. I could hear the sound of the train. I could see this thing inspecting me like a cold piece of meat on a slab. I can't move. I can't scream. I can't speak. And then something happened. The train jolted or something and I was out of it. But that smoky face thing simply went up into the luggage rack, sat there for a little while. I mean, I could feel the coldness and my hairs on the back of my head were sticking up. So I I took a walk. I mean, I went and chatted to people, used the bathroom on the train, bought myself a beer, anything to take my mind off this thing. I went back to the carriage and yeah, it seemed to be okay. So I got back into bed and lo and behold, the same thing happened again. And so two times in one night I had this experience. And both times I saw the entity long after I was wide awake and in some form of sleep paralysis. And, and again, I really don't know that sleep paralysis answers all the questions for this sort of experience. I really don't.
1: Wow. Gary, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. You've been a great guest. I would love to have you back on in the future if you're up for it. My pleasure.
2: Anytime. Uh, just drop me an email. I mean, I'm, I'm always ready. I, I love talking about this stuff.
0: Well, let's call him back right now. (laughs) I have have a bunch more questions. I, you know, helped with some of the questions, but I I wasn't there for the interview, but I thought it was uh, well-rounded, talked about all the major points of this phenomenon, let's say, and legend, but still not enough for a lot of people. Yeah. You can make these points... And they'll just keep reiterating like, well, I think it's this. It's It's all made up. Brian Bethel. It's it's all made (laughs) up. It's from the internet. Creepypasta. Blah, blah, blah. That's it. Yeah. And What's your next show about? Yeah. (laughs) What's the next show? (laughs) So he does cover a lot of the things that people say. But again, this is very personal. I think like his train story. It was meant for him or it sought him out. Other people on the train didn't see this. Yeah. Well, if they did, they didn't say. Well, he was in his room alone,
1: and there was a component of it that was predatory. And we obviously have a lot of people that listen to the show from all age groups, so I'm just going to say that it was an uncomfortable feeling for him in terms of this thing. And when he said it was looking him over like a piece of meat on a slab— what he meant was that it felt like a predatory being, yeah. And I'm,
0: let's just say it wanted to get closer to him. <laughs> well, yes. If any of you out there know what an incubus or succubus is, is they are out to gather your energy. And it sounds to some, it might sound, ooh, that sounds exciting. And most of the cases, it sounds pleasurable, but not, yeah. Because what they're after is your energy, yeah. But what's so interesting about this is that he's in a public place, essentially. He's on public transportation,
1: yeah. And yeah. it happens. Well, and that goes back to what we talked about back when we were doing the Mothman series and the idea of ley lines and routes that are traveled and hotels and places where lots of people come and go from. There seems to be a preponderance of events happening in those kinds of areas, which... I guess, would go back to the grand unified theory. The whole idea of just, we've talked about this before, but the stone tapes and the echoes of existence and the difference between an interactive apparition and something that just seems like a reflection from the past, like in our Queen Mary episode. There's so many different ways that these things play out. In this particular case, it seemed interactive. And with the black-eyed kids, they are always interactive. They are there and they are communicating with you.
0: Yes, and you try and see a pattern from all of these puzzle pieces. And is it something where... People are targeted, specific people. And a lot of the stories I've heard personally from people I know or that have contacted us through the show, it does seem to run sometimes in families. It does seem to follow certain individuals. Sometimes it's just a house because they'll it'll be one room in a house. It'll be one spot. It'll be a closet where something's peeking out. The Kikowski could, intruder. Yeah, it could be, it, like I said, it could be a piece of furniture. It could be a haunted object. So I think for me anyway, that the answer that I see is that it's a multitude of places and answers and, and scenarios. And,
1: and Gary and said his
0: in his own family that his father had had experiences. Right, that might make did, him... His yeah. brother,
1: and, and that's something we find consistently too, that like you said, it, right. it, it appears to have a genetic component to a it, certain it, extent. I think
0: in some cases it does. That's why there's no one single pattern, which is disconcerting also to people because they want to see a pattern, because patterns can be avoided. Yeah, that's why people discerned. always
1: ask, well, yeah, when something suddenly happens to someone you know <laughs> or you see a story on the news a car runs off the top floor of a parking deck, the first thing you want to do is get all the details. Around, what did that guy do that I don't ever do? <laughs> exactly. It's not going to happen to me. Right. Right? And so you want to quantify it, like
0: you said. But these things seem to be showing up in a wide variety of situations. Well, that's what was so interesting about his story about the train is that the train is moving. So it's not like, you know, and European trains move fast. So it's not like you saw a blip of a ghost like, wait, wait a second. Come back here. Yeah. You know, I'm only at this crossing and you zip through it. It's traveling on a train that has a lot of people on it that is the train car haunted. I don't know what you know, for whatever it is, it's riding along. So it is also traveling with people. So is it following him specifically? Well, we don't know, but it's an interesting way to look at that. Also, it's like you said about finding a pattern and what's disconcerting. It's funny, I, I have a couple of uh, survival books. One's uh, the SAS survival book, and, and uh, John Weissman, I think, wrote it, uh, who is an instructor, and says that, well, what's the safest place on a plane to avoid injury or death in a large commuter plane crash? And he says, well, often, if you sit in the very back, a lot of times the tail cone breaks off. Plus, if a plane is heading down nose first, that's getting wiped out and your best chances are in the tail section. And so recently I read something where it said, well, statistically, there's no safe place. It's all chance. (laughs) There's people who have survived sitting in every place of the plane, and people who have perished, you know, sitting in the tail, sitting up front. It just doesn't matter. So you seem kind of fatalistic at that point. So I think that's one more element, this uncertainty, this unable to get around this aspect of this legend, whether you believe it or not, is really disconcerting to people and that there's nothing you can do if you're in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time it will just happen but this is what i tell people who are really scared of this i don't blame them for being really scared of this is that this is still extremely rare these occurrences yeah i think anecdotally just we'll have to see because after we did the shadow people episode we had a lot of people that still contact us with shadow people experiences, which are not all just hypnagogic waking or, or falling asleep kind of experiences or dreamlike experiences of paralysis or recurrent isolated sleep paralysis. These are, I woke up and this thing's still there. And I know I'm awake because I didn't like fall back asleep and wake up again. Right. Which is what Gary said too. Exactly. So yeah. that my point is that those stories have continued to keep rolling into us. And I think this will happen as well as the years go on and we keep doing the show. But what I'm saying to people who are really frightened of this, it's Probably nothing will ever happen to you. (laughs) It's not really comforting, but again, I think it's very, very rare. I also thought it was interesting what Gary was saying about how, for
1: him, there was a delineation between the idea of black-eyed children and men in black and adult black-eyed persons, which we're actually going to talk about here in this episode. That was fascinating to me. And in addition to that, the other thing that's interesting to me is the whole, like, choose a form kind of aspect to it. It, it reminds me Gozer. of ghost, yeah, yeah. Ghostbusters, <laughs> choose a form. No,
0: people have been mentioning that, too, on our social media. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, it's true. It's These things are showing up, and they look like what you need to see, the thing you're most likely to help. Yeah. If you're of a particular ethnicity, they look like your own ethnicity. Or in Jasmine's case from Brownsville, Texas, they looked like ancestors of her own ethnicity. Or they right. look like, it's very fascinating what people are seeing in these scenarios. And that adds another element to it. And frankly, it reminds me of the Walmart story. And here's the thing about this, because Gary was talking about, you know, 30% of these things are happening at Walmart. <laughs> he well, had, the prices are great. Yeah, we blame them. <laughs> the thing he had no idea of was that just a few hours before I interviewed him, we had gotten an email from listeners in Canada, a group of siblings that had a story that was pretty freaky to me. And it all took place in a Walmart parking lot. Well,
0: I I don't think that's the only freaky thing that has taken place in a Walmart Well, no, of course not. But (laughs) but this story is really intriguing, and we thought we'd share it with you. So I was recently listening to the Bell Witch episodes of your show and heard your call for any experiences with the Black Eyed Kids, as I've come to know them. I'm glad to let you know that I have such an experience. It's not the typical experience, I'll admit, but I am certain that what I and my siblings experienced was in fact the Black Eyed Kids. For starters, it must be known that I live in southern Ontario, Canada, in the more rural parts surrounded by cornfields. I am a proud member of the Ojibwe Nation. The time in which this experience occurred was around the release of the Mothman episodes, which were great. For our listeners, that would have been October 2016. So, late one night, I'm inclined to say around 3 a.m., my siblings and I were out driving around after a day at the beach. We tend to enjoy very late-night drives as we are all night hawks. There is a small farming town 20 minutes from our home and we all decided to stop there for refreshments as we were fairly close to it already while driving. So we stopped and got drinks at a 24-hour coffee shop we frequented often. Near this coffee shop, there is a Walmart which has free Wi-Fi accessible from the parking lot intended for the truckers that often sleep there. We all agreed to sit and use the Wi-Fi while we had our refreshments. So we parked under the only parking lot light which was still on The rest of the lot was completely black. As we sat and watched cat videos and checked our Facebooks, I noticed the light began to flicker. Something I knew fluorescent lights did. So I ignored the flickering of the light and continued to listen and download more Astonishing Legends podcasts. As the newest Mothman episode was downloading, I watched a video on YouTube about a story I had seen on TV one night the story of the black eyed kids. Needless to say, I felt creeped out having heard some people experience them in Walmart parking lots. Now, it must be known all of the workers and staff were gone by this time, so it was just me and my siblings in the vicinity. Suddenly, I see two hooded shadows, as far as I could tell, walk beside our Chevrolet HHR. The shadow on the right side of the car walked by and toward the Walmart at a steady pace. However, the shadow at the left side of the car seemed to appear out of the darkness walk quickly around the back of our car and vanish. I said nothing as my siblings who were in the front seats didn't seem to notice. I scanned the area to see where the figures went only to find no one could be seen. The Walmart was closed so it was pointless for someone to be going there let alone to be walking there. Just as I looked back at my phone's screen the parking lot light went out completely. My sister who was driving, asked if we were ready to leave. To which my brother and I quickly replied, Yep. Now I'd like to point out my siblings and I are between the ages of 20 and 30. By no means are any of us children. Childish, but not children. As we were driving home, my brother asked if any of us had noticed the person walking across the parking lot. You mean the one who walked just in front of the car and out toward the darkness? My sister asked. My brother then said no, the one crossing the middle of the parking lot going towards Walmart, just before the light went out. Yeah, that's when we seen them, both me and my sister replied. I seen two teens, in like hoodies, walk around the sides and back of the car. Is that the people you guys seen too? I asked. Yeah, exactly, was the last thing said amongst my siblings until we got home. It was very clear we had all witnessed the same beings, but at different spots, all at the same time. It wasn't until we got home that I told my siblings of the video I was watching about the Black-Eyed Kids and filled them in on the legend. We all agreed what we had experienced that night was the Black-Eyed Kids. Being Native American, we are aware of strange beings living among us. So none of us denied what we'd experienced. My brother insisted the reason they didn't try to enter our vehicle was because we had a braid sweetgrass wrapped around our car's rearview mirror a Native American medicine, and we were still on what was traditionally Ojibwe land. Me and my siblings have experienced many supernatural things in our lives, and this was just another minor story to add to the list. A story I'm glad to share with my favorite podcast, if you believe any of this at all. Sincerely, Avery A. Hendrick. Well... I think it's time to go get some braid sweetgrass. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to keep your St. Christopher's metal company on the the rearview mirror. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. You know what? I had to look up what it was. It's pretty fascinating. I had heard of it, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. There's an Ojibwe website that describes it like this. Sweetgrass is a gift from Mother Earth. It is said to be part of her hair, and the use of sweetgrass promotes strength and kindness. When braiding sweetgrass... Each strand of the braid represents mind, body, and spirit. It is also important to remember the teaching of the sweetgrass braid and walk that way when wearing a braid in our own hair. And it's interesting. There's another website where you can purchase it. In the quick overview on this website, this is at suetrading.com. That last thing I read is from ojibweresources.weebly.com. And this one is from suetrading.com, suetrading.com as in the Native American tribe, not Sioux, like a boy named Sioux. Here's a description. People are attracted by the sight as much as by the scent of Wakanga, forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, Mm -hmm. or sweetgrass braids. They are often used for smudging, and their sweet smell is said to please all the spirits. Most people burn sage after burning sweetgrass, as this will keep less positive forces at bay. The dried and prepared braids of sweetgrass have been a trade item on the Northern Plains for millennia. So I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah, I like the idea behind it too. Yeah, yeah, so it sounds like this might be a good defense. If you're worried about the black-eyed kids, maybe get some of that stuff and pop it on the
0: door there. <laughs> well, <it's laughs> like there's a lot of power, a lot of people believe that plants have. It reminds me, of course, we say this quite a bit actually, the uh, the Hawaiian tea plant being used to keep the night marchers away or yeah. just off the road so they're not into the tourists' cars because that yeah. <laughs> really cuts down <laughs> on the tourism. But that's what the state of Hawaii was doing along the sides of the roads where they were getting more sightings and reports of people having uh, unpleasant experiences. Yeah. Again, speaking kind of off the cuff here, but I believe with pagan beliefs, there is a lot of power and magic. It's like herbalism. It's kind of like any practice where you're using uh, plants, you're using stuff that the earth provides, but you have to know what you're doing. And I've seen some comments, I think on our own Facebook where people, you know, somebody has said... Well, just burning sage, white sage, isn't enough. You have to know the ceremony that goes along with it, or it's meaningless. I guess kind of like the priest holding up the crucifix to the vampire Kurt Barlow in Salem's Lot, where he lost his faith. Then it's just a piece of wood. Yeah. Hey, like my point, couldn't hurt, you know? Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah, so that's good to know. Yeah, I do like the uh, sentiment behind it. You know how we're always telling the audience that they can learn just about anything from the best professors and experts in the world by signing up for The Great Courses Plus? Uh, Yeah, honestly,
1: by now it's kind of etched into my brain, (laughs) but frankly, it happens to be true.
0: Well, you can also learn from some of the most famous because the latest course we're featuring from over there is The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries with rock star astrophysicist Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. He is definitely one of our favorite physicists because he has this really engaging way of explaining
1: the most complicated concepts in cosmology that even the likes of us can understand, So let me ask you this, Forrest. Have you found a connection to his lecture series and some of the themes from our show?
0: No, I think he'd really enjoy our show, but probably his comedy, uh, not for the bits that we think are funny. However, one fascinating idea he punctuated that I thought you could apply when trying to make sense of the paranormal... Wait, wait, wait. He tries to make sense of the paranormal? No, heck no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) At least not in lecture number one. Uh, But listen to this. In astronomer Claudius Ptolemy's great work, The Almagest, He outlined his complete understanding of the universe, which was geocentric, meaning the Earth was at the center of the cosmos and the sun and planets rotated around us. And that idea stood for 1400 years until 1543, when Nicholas Copernicus would propose the heliocentric model of the universe, where the planets orbit around the sun. But as Dr. Tyson says, what's important here is that the world embraced an idea that was wrong but made sense, and that ought to tell us something, that not everything in the world that makes sense is correct. Well, what does make sense is getting a free month of unlimited
1: access to the Great Courses Plus by using our special URL, the Great
0: Courses Plus dot com slash legends. And now the audio for those over 8,500 lectures are streamable too with the Great Courses Plus app. You can listen along as you go about your day with the flexibility to switch back to video whenever you want. So start your free trial today at the plus dot com slash legends. That's the dot com slash legends.
2: I'm Sarah B C and this is Astonishing Legends. I'm a
1: Well, this segues very nicely into our next topic. It's something people have been asking us about since we started this series. What happens when you let the black-eyed kids in? Yes. Obviously, we've made it real clear that's a bad idea. (laughs) You don't want to do it, but some people did. And the stories about what happened to them after they
0: did that are kind of chilling. Well, as we said before, because again, people have asked since we introduced this topic, what happens? Well, nothing good. This took place in Arizona in the mid 1980s. One late evening,
1: I woke up to loud knocks on the front door of my house. My husband was fast asleep and I didn't want to go down and open the door. It wasn't normal for us to have late night visitors, so I did wonder if it was an accident of some type. I looked out the window and I couldn't see anything. It was pitch black outside. I woke my husband and asked him to go down and find out what was happening. He wasn't very happy, but he got up, put his robe on, and went downstairs. I watched from the landing as he opened the door. Two children were standing there. Both looked young and both looked like they were frozen I know there was a boy and a girl. My husband asked him if they had been in an accident. They nodded. He asked them if their parents were with them and they shook their heads. One of them said, our parents are coming for us. My husband was still half asleep and started closing the door. Let us in, one of them said. Let us in. I watched as my husband opened the door and they walked in. He was obviously not in control of his own body. He doesn't take orders, but he did that night. I could see that both the children looked like they were eight years old. I went downstairs and asked him if they would like to sit down. We went through to the kitchen and they sat. Our dog went crazy. I had to shut him in another room. He would not stop barking. Looking back now, he knew what these kids really were. I tried to make small talk with the kids, but they didn't say anything. My husband said nothing. It was then that he started to complain about stomach pains. He said that he felt as though he had been stuck with a sword. I tried to help him, and the kids didn't move. I left the room, but when I came back, my husband had passed out, and the kids couldn't be found. I called 911 and asked for an ambulance. I didn't even think about the kids until the next day. My husband was taken to the hospital and needed to have immediate surgery. remove his appendix. The doctor said that he had a rumbling appendix and would have died if he'd ignored it. The thing is, he'd never had any issues with his appendix before that night. Who were those kids? Why did they want to hurt us? I know that they caused my husband's issues, and I want to know why.
0: So that's one example of why you don't let them in. Yeah, burst appendix.
1: Now, I think a lot of people will
0: just say, well, the appendix was going to burst anyway. (laughs) It's funny. It's like the sweet grass or the St. Christopher's Medal, (laughs) carried by people I know who aren't Catholic or don't believe in it. Yeah. It's insurance. And so the insurance here is just don't let them in. But we've had people write to us like, well, hey, you know, if you saw two kids... Of course, you're going to let them in. You're going to help them. But as we often have mentioned, we always talk about the book, The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker, who's a personal security and safety expert and Sanford Strong. And all the experts will tell you, number one, trust your gut instinct because that's when people get in trouble when they're trying to be nice. Like, Could you help me blow this couch in my van? And it's yeah, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he's got a broken arm. Sure, yeah, he looks nice. And that's what happens is that we let that sense of wanting to help others get the better of us and that's when you get into trouble and yes I know they're kids but there's a smart way to do this it's like if you see somebody broken down by the side of the road well occasionally you're trying to be a good Samaritan and uh, something very bad happens to you so what you do you do the smart thing you make the call for them and that happens you know for anybody showing up at your house You say, okay, sorry, I'll make a call for you. Do you need me to call 911? Call your parents? Give me the number. And you have them stay outside. I think any police officer or safety expert will tell you that's what you do. You don't let strange people into your house, even if they're kids, and especially if they have all black eyes and are giving you the feeling of hell in the pit of your stomach. Yeah. (laughs) Listen to that.
1: Well, there's more than a few stories about letting them in. There's another one that's been really making the rounds, even though it was put up a while back over at week and weird which is a blog and also now a traveling paranormal and occult museum started by Greg Newkirk and Dana Matthews and they have a blog entry over there that you brought to my attention for about yeah. Black-eyed Kids that's pretty freaky and what happens in this story is this woman wrote into them and Greg he edited it a little bit but he really he put it up as it was redacted her name and then I guess he had continued conversations with her and she and her husband lived in a house in Vermont and there was a snowstorm and in the
0: middle of the night they hear this banging on the door that's It's interesting that the snowstorm appears because so many of these stories, again, from people that we've talked to that have called in that I've gotten to know, yeah, these things often happen in a weird, freakish snowstorm.
1: Yeah, there's bad weather. And that says something about the nature of the energy of it, of their appearance and what's going on. Kind of in the world or the universe at that moment, or your local universe, anyway. right, right? Not saying that they're causing
0: the snowstorm. No. Well, sometimes actually, because but I've maybe heard they're attracted people, to
1: the energy of it. I mean, yeah,
0: there's something. It's I also think, a good time to beg for help. Exactly. And yeah, when you when you say, "Well, do you believe every story you're told?" It's like, well, no. If you're with that person and there's no reason for them to act, and you get a real sense of fear, sometimes even they start crying. I'm getting the feeling that something traumatic really did happen to them. So I'm going with that. But what I'm saying is that, yeah, sometimes there's a snowstorm where they will check later and there was no other snow in the area. Uh, Our Perrishainy story, the gentleman who had, uh, he and his friends took the headstone from the grave, unfortunately, said there was, I think, some bad weather localized, like in that spot. And that was part of his story. So who knows where this is coming from, but it's an interesting cover for these people. And also I've heard stories of a blinding snowstorm and kids showing up wearing no jacket yeah. and not shivering. That's the thing. It's like, look, if you're trying to play a prank and the, the snow is blowing sideways and you're out there in just a shirt and you say, we're up to cover and warm up, but you're not wearing a coat. You're not shivering. You're not huddling. You're not like chattering. You just seem like it's not bothering you. That's another sign that something's up. Well,
1: these kids, they were banging on the door super loud. And she was saying that when she first woke up, she looked out the window, she couldn't see them, but she could see the footprints in the snow. So again, it has, at least in this case, a physical presence. Or it's able to make footprints. Or it's able to make footprints. (laughs) So she wakes her husband up, he goes down, he opens the door, and there's an eight-year-old boy and a girl there. And they are not making eye contact initially. So... Their concern was that there had been a car accident in the snow, but they couldn't see a car. Right. And they asked him, so where are your parents? And they just kept saying, they'll be here soon. Yeah. So then the husband invites them in. Yeah. And this is what we were talking about. What happens when you let them in? They come in, and
0: they sit down. I believe they went into the kitchen. I can't remember for sure. We'll have a link to the story. I think the wife goes to make them some cocoa. Yeah. And so they can warm up. And the husband's kind of, uh, I guess, entertaining them. But he seems like he's kind of in a trance.
1: Yeah. And the other thing was they had four cats that were generally out, not afraid of people. But in this case— Yeah. Three of the cats were hiding, yeah. and there was one cat that came around to see who was coming in the house, yeah. and when it saw the kids, it arched its back and hissed, yeah. which the woman said it, she had never seen it do, in yeah. the whole time she had had it. Well, that, <laughs> so she, she comes back in now to the room where her husband is, and he's got his head down in his hands. He's holding his head in yeah. his hands like something's wrong with him. And that's when she realizes that the kids have black eyes. Yeah, Just all consuming black eyes, which she had not seen prior to that point. It's another consistent thing with all these stories. People don't see it at first for whatever reason, whether the eyes are normal and they turn black or they're somehow they're camouflaging the fact that their eyes are black. They never see them until a few minutes into the story, which I think is interesting.
0: Yeah. It's every variation. It's the one consistent thing though is the eyes throughout all these stories. But there's countless other variations on this of age, clothing, skin type, ethnicity, what they ask for. But there's a through line of some very general things about asking for the phone or the telegraph. The telephone is kind of a, a flimsy excuse because they don't explain why they need it or we need money for the movie that's half over. It's something to just get in and it's not really About the excuse, about having answers to counter your questions, because their main tool, the spiritual Swiss army knife here, is their power of influence, and they're going with that first, and that's when they get mad, I think, when that doesn't work. But basically, yeah, snowstorm, we're cold, you want to let the kids in. Yeah. And why do people not do that? Well, it's hard to say. I don't know if you've ever been in a hypnotic state like that. It's hard to understand If you haven't, I believe. And it's hard to explain if you have. Those are the two sides of it, basically. But anyway, so they get let in. And I believe, yes, she goes to warm them up with some cocoa. So she's physically further away from the kids, whereas the husband, he's up close to them.
1: Yeah. And this is where things get really bad. She comes back into the room there, and the husband is having a nosebleed. Yeah. Out of nowhere. So then she runs to go get some Kleenex or something, and at this point, the power goes out in their house. Yeah, this is,
0: uh, again, if this is all just fiction, that's a good story element
1: right there. Yeah, right. And so now she's coming back down the hall, I guess, with the Kleenex, and like, the power's out, the lights are dark, and the two kids are just standing in the room in the dark. At the end of the hall, I guess At the believe. end of the hall, straight Silhouetted, out Silhouetted, Right, yeah. which, I mean, this sounds like it's straight out of The Shining, but I mean, that's <laughs> what's happening according to this story. And then one of the kids says, our parents are here. So the woman goes and looks out the window, and there's a car, a large black car, at the end of the driveway, idling, with two adult men standing outside of it in the snowstorm, I guess ostensibly to pick the kids up. Well, you know. So the kids leave. About a half hour later, the power comes on, but this is only the beginning of the problems that this couple starts to have. Right. All three of the cats that weren't in the room went missing. Completely gone, like maybe left the house. Who knows? I don't know if they were indoor-outdoor cats. She doesn't say that. Yeah. The fourth cat, they came home one day, and it was dead on the floor in a pool of blood. Ugh. Like it had been throwing up blood. Yeah. The husband continues to have nosebleeds. The woman is having dizzying spells and nosebleeds. And finally, the husband gets diagnosed with an aggressive and severe form of skin cancer that is
0: killing him. Ugh, geez. yeah geez. So that's how that story ends. Yeah. So one thing I want to point out here before we move on to the next story is that this element of the two guys in the large black car wearing the fedoras, they really do point to a men in black connection, which is something that uh, a lot of people have alluded to or made that connection, surmising this. They haven't studied it like Gary Michael Vasey or David Weatherly or Jason Offutt. They're just seeing these connections. And so when people point out these things, it's like, well, they're making these kind of connections because of stories like this, which are all we can go by. But when you hear that there's two men that look like men in black, like, geez, is there a connection there? Are they the kids of the men in black? Are they like little minions being sent out? Well, from what I've heard of men in black stories, yeah, there's some similarities in the weird approach, but not really too many that I've heard where there were bad physical consequences from being close to them. Yeah. They kind of harass you in a weird way. They make you feel uneasy, but not like deep down evil. And you certainly don't get skin cancer later as far as, you know, the stories that I've heard. So it's enough to make people think that there's some kind of connection. Well,
1: yeah. And so what we're looking at here, we're looking at a burst appendix. We're looking at somebody coming down with skin cancer and possibly dying from it. There's another story that came in a week and weird. It's a much simpler story, but essentially this guy went to Arcata, California, which is a pretty far north, almost on the uh, northern border of California to visit a friend or something and was driving going to drive back home and on the way home decides to stop at a bar and maybe have a drink, goes into the bar and winds up hitting it off with the woman who owns the bar. He then decides that he's going to stay with her. So he waits till the bar closes. They go home together to her house, and he spends the night. About 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, he's thirsty. I'm guessing probably dehydrated. He gets up, goes into the kitchen of her house to get some water, and he sees a group of black-eyed children running around the house, on the first floor of the house. And he's thinking, oh, this is strange. And do, do these kids have school the next day? I don't know. Like, he he doesn't know what to think. He yeah. takes the water, he goes back to the room, he goes back to bed. The next day, he gets up and he drives home. Now, the person who sent this story and described this guy as a healthy, athletic, and very good shape, he was diagnosed with bladder cancer about a month later, and he died six months after that. And he told the person who sent the story into weak and Weird that he fully believed that whatever happened that night with that woman, who he also described as having very bizarre behavior, hmm was connected directly to him coming down with cancer. So that's the final, for all the people that have been asking, what happens when you (laughs) let him in? As Forrest said, nothing good. And the strange thing about that is that's not the only bartender story we've had. We had another listener who got in touch with us and honestly didn't want to go on the record. We had an off-the-record call with her, and it was pretty fascinating. And she told a story about when she was younger that she had gone to a bar where she knew the bartender. The bartender was a friend of hers. They were talking and hanging out. And during the course of this time, this is not a crowded situation. I got the feeling it was kind of a quiet, smaller yeah, bar. Yeah,
0: I think it was like between lunch and uh, the dinner crowd and all that. Right.
1: So now while she's sitting there, this guy comes into the bar. And he has these stringy, dark hair. And he's wearing a hat. But it's not a fedora. It's like a bowler hat. And he sits <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. And he has a long jacket, a long black jacket. I believe everything was black. You were on the call for us, So correct me if yeah, i make yeah. any mistakes. He sits down at the end of the bar, maybe down at the corner, and he's just grinning. And this comes back to the whole grinning man thing. We talked about this in the Shadow People episode. Devil in the diner. Devil in the diner. It's the
0: grin that uh, you know who I am.
1: Yeah. It makes her really uncomfortable. And the bartender offers the man a drink, and he just shakes his head no, or refuses the drink. And she, I guess, figures, well, it was cold outside. I think it, it was a cold time of year, and he's just coming in to warm up for a minute. No big whoop. So the the guy sits there for a minute. The person we spoke to sits and talks to her friend, but she's feeling unnervingly compelled to stare at this man at the end of the bar. And the more she looks at him, the more she realizes that he has all black eyes. Now, this is a grown man. This is not a black-eyed kid. This is an adult. And this is what we're going to talk about next is the idea of these black-eyed adults. Mm -hmm. He then gets up to leave the bar, and she can't help but feel compelled to follow him. He goes out the door and she gets up and follows him out. And when she gets out onto the street, it's just like all the other stories. Once we've shared from other listeners, he's just gone and quickly gone. There was not a place that he could have disappeared to. And the amount of time it took her to head out and see where he went. And... So this has a lot of elements that the other stories have about, you know, him grinning, he's wearing a hat, but I thought it was interesting that it's like a bowler. She described it as something that I think she said that her dad had one when she was a kid.
0: It's a British style hat, right? Yeah. That's kind of round at the top of René Magritte paintings of the guy with the apple in front of his face. Yes. All these surrealistic paintings. It's an unusual hat to wear here in the States. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but classic, sure. It's a crazy story.
1: And it, the thing about the bartender reminded me of our next story, which actually comes out of Gary Michael Vasey's book. This is a fascinating story about a guy who encountered a black-eyed adult in a very crowded scenario, but apparently no one else saw him.
0: The bar was packed, six people deep, loud music, and what looked like no end to the drink call-outs. My husband, Jim, looked up and saw a tall man slowly approaching the bar. He was approximately six foot five inches tall with long, straight black hair. He wore black trousers, T-shirt, and long black coat. Jim said it was as if the crowd parted for this man as he slowly walked straight up to the bar, smack bang in front of Jim's frozen gaze. He quietly ordered bourbon, When Jim looked up at this huge man, he noticed his eyes were completely black. Jim turned to make the drink and glanced in the mirror, looking at the black-eyed man just staring back. Jim mustered enough courage to turn and give him the drink. Jim said he felt great fear at first while in his presence. He knew this man was staring at him, but he didn't want to make eye contact, but felt compelled not to feel fear the large black-eyed man knocked back the bourbon and disappeared into the crowd. Jim, for unknown reason, had a feeling to run after him for what he believes was to ask the large man what he wanted, what he was doing there, or who he was after. Jim moved as quickly as he could through the crowd of people on two levels of the club to get to the front door. The strange man was nowhere in sight jim asked the security staff but no one saw him leave no bar staff saw the huge black-eyed man no one jim was baffled how the barman next to him did not see him nor did any of the regulars at the bar security tapes also showed nothing what the hell did jim see
1: All right. So this is another black eyed person story, which I think is really interesting. And it has a lot in common with the story that we got from our listener in that this guy felt compelled to follow this person. Now, the person came into this club. This was a letter sent in to Gary Michael Vasey, and it came out of his book. So we don't have any way to really follow up on it, which Gary himself said, you know, it's hard to verify these stories. In right. the case of that one, it's written kind of odd. The yeah. name Jim is restated over and over and over, and it, well, which uh, you know I can't decide yeah. if that just means that it's made up and poorly written. Well, or I, I, yeah, <laughs> well, this is,
0: you know, it's like what he said, Gary Michael Vasey, is yeah. that there's very few and difficult markers to judge these by because he said some of his own personal stories that he experienced himself and knows them to be true are really outlandish, right? So somebody writing in, it's hard to say, well, that element there, that sounds like it's too much. Now, granted, I fully admit that I do that with stories that we get in. And regardless of what people might say on social media, I actually don't believe every story I hear, many that have been on social media, because of various elements. Because it's not that it seems to fit any pattern. It's just that uh, there's a ring to it that is more, let's say, fairy tale-ish or urban legend-ish without some of these other factors. The other thing is, if it's too much, I wouldn't say outlandish or weird. It's like certain stories that are currently going around now. It's just so much. And this isn't something that goes on every night for a month. It's usually not every night because after several nights, I would have my camera set up. Yeah. So again, it's really hard to say what it is. You have to kind of go by, well, does this person seem believable? And maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't believe anybody. And that's fine too, but it all comes down to a personal experience and a personal relationship. If it's your best friend, do you just call him a weirdo, roll your eyes and and tell them they're nuts or stupid? I don't choose to do that. But in any case, this last story has an interesting element in that he apparently did not show up on security camera footage. So that's another question people have been writing into us about. Well,
1: what I was going to say about us not being able to reach the person that sent in the story, and that's the kind of investigation we typically like to do. And granted, the whole Black Eyed Kids thing in general, there's definitely a lot of fiction floating around Sure, sure. And we're not pretending that it's not. Yeah. you know. And so it's hard to know what's real and what isn't. But in the case of this story, I would want to talk to, when it's not Halloween, in a different time of <laughs> yeah. year, and yes, I know it's past Halloween now, but we wanted to finish this series out. I might not have included this story because I can't reach the person the experience here directly because what right. i would want to know is if you have the security footage or you saw it or does anyone still have it and if they don't or at the very least if the bartender jim served him a drink yeah how would that play out on a security camera if the person was not there right. I, you know or we have a glass floating <laughs> up or my favorite Martian the, yeah yeah the guy never even goes to serve the drink, the whole thing happened in his head, which comes back to the whole idea of these things existing in a spiritual place, that they're not in the real world, it's only a personal experience. Like when you look at Avery's story from the Walmart parking lot, he and his brothers and sisters, or or siblings, he said, I'm not sure whether they were all brothers and sisters or whatever, but... Some siblings, yes. Yeah, they all saw something different. Right. At the same time, but in different places around the car, which is pretty freaky. Right. And then we've got this person who is the bartender in the club, and no one else saw the person at all. And again, in this case, we're also dealing with an adult. It's a new degree
0: of strangeness high strangeness. And it raises some questions though, which uh, I think we'll be wrapping up with here in our analysis of something that's totally unanalyzable, but but we'll try. But the idea though, is that what do these things really look like? Is it a a fog, a mist, like Mr. Vasey said with a face on it? What do these really look like? And is it something that you just don't comprehend because of how we comprehend things as humans. We've mentioned this before, but I always think of this example, you know, we're of the animal kingdom. We're certainly hopefully more advanced and an apex predator. We like to think a sophisticated brain, but it's interesting to me how animals perceive stuff. But a mutual friend of ours years ago went on a safari in South Africa. He'd never been on one. And so you're in one of those large Land Rovers with the totally open top. So you can take photographs and there's just a kind of a scaffolding there so you can lean over. The only thing the guide tells you is just that when we roll up to this pride of lions, just be very still. You can take pictures, but whisper and don't make any big arm movements or sudden movements on the truck. Because our friend was saying like, yeah, aren't they going to see that we're like juicy humans (laughs) is standing up in an open truck and they're going to decide to, uh, you know, it's just a, a good buffet platter. And the guide was saying, like, well, no, because the way the animal sees you is that you're just some giant, large brown animal with big, fat, round legs rolling up that's bigger than them. And a curiosity, but he sees you at the same time every day, you know, at these tour times. And they don't attack you because they don't see you as six humans in a truck. Now, he said, now, if you start moving and flailing your arms... Then they will start to identify you as separate animals on top of this other structure, which looks like a dinner platter. So yes, animals don't have the critical thinking skills we do, hopefully. I mean, that would be scary if they did. Again, when they see the car roll up, they don't know what that is until you start making motions like, wait, there's six separate animals on top of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm wondering getting back to that is that what does this thing look like really? It goes back to even Rich Haddam's comment about being abducted. You know, the person next to the person driving passes out for five minutes, wakes up and says, I was just abducted. What happened there? So is it all in your brain? And who's beaming that in? what's going on here? Are they totally physical? Or is it, you know, some are physical, some are just a thought form that's uh, popping into people's heads. And if it's in the same area, is everybody seeing exactly the same thing? So these are all interesting questions, which we'll never have concrete answers to, but it's fun to think about. You know, life is too short to be spending it alone, especially around the holidays. Are you speaking from personal experience? Yeah, but uh, we are excited to announce a new sponsor for the show, eHarmony. If you've been thinking about trying out an online dating site, but
1: maybe you're a little shy or you don't want to get involved in one of those other shallow hookup sites, eHarmony is the way to go because it's for people who are serious about finding a real,
0: meaningful, lasting relationship. That's because eHarmony uses years and years of science, data, and psychological research to send you the right matches. Science! See, this scientific approach alone I found fascinating. And it's really easy and fun to get started. You just fill out a straightforward questionnaire about your likes and dislikes, your preferences, you know, how you would describe yourself, and you're already on your way to finding the perfect match. So you started a profile? Can, can I see it? eHarmony has already helped over a million people find their perfect match. And right now, Astonishing Legends listeners can get a free month with eHarmony when they sign up for a three-month subscription. You just enter the promo code LEGENDS at checkout. I will say, life's moments really are better when you have somebody to share them with. Aw, I agree. So stop waiting and start your journey to a satisfying, meaningful relationship. It can be fun to play around with online dating apps, but when you're ready to fall in love with someone and have a meaningful relationship, there's one app that's built to bring you real love, eHarmony. Come see how eHarmony can change your life. Go to eHarmony.com and get started. And remember to enter the code LEGENDS at checkout. That's L-E-G-E-N-D-S. So what about showing me that profile? Spot's over.
1: One of our favorite sponsors is back and just in time for the gift-giving
0: season, Movement Watches. Oh yeah, we're really excited because they'll be featured at our fan meetup on December 2nd. And if you haven't heard us talk about Movement before, they're a really cool online-based watch and sunglasses company started by two broke college kids who love stylish watches. They couldn't afford anything sold in the department stores, so they started their own company. I
1: love that kind of initiative in entrepreneurship because it reminds me of how we started this podcast, with little more than a dream to bring... (laughs) with little more than a dream to bring a quality product to the masses.
0: <laughs> mm, well, slightly different product. Wake me when we've sold over a million watches in over 160 countries. But I do see your point, because they took a great idea and ran with it, which is to make a quality watch that has classic design, styled minimalism, and sell it directly online, starting at just 95 bucks. If you tried to buy a watch like theirs at a brick and mortar, it would cost you around four to $500. We always get compliments on ours, and people want to know what store we
1: got them at, because they're not like the same old timepieces you see in department stores, which is another great reason to check out movement. You can do it all online, so it's the easiest gift you'll ever shop for,
0: for men or women, young and old. And they also make great business gifts, because not only does the watch itself look really classy, but the box they come in also makes for a stylish presentation. So check a few things off your holiday shopping list and get 15% off today
1: with free shipping and free returns by going to
0: mvmt.com slash legends. This watch has a really clean design that makes a great fashion statement. Now is the time to step up your watch game or someone else's. Go to mvmt.com slash legends. Join the movement. I'm Maxie. And when I'm not busy writing novels, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. And now, back to the show.
1: Well, the last story we want to share before we get on to our analysis and conclusions about the Black Eyed Kids is one story that uh, Forrest kind of dubbed the Adjustment Bureau story. (laughs) And I enjoyed this. It's not super long. This is straight out of... Mr. Vasey's book. And there was an element of this story that had something in common with one of the earlier stories we shared, where the black eyed kids showed up and then they left. And then the little girl showed up and she had white eyes. And that plays to this whole idea. And it's a recurring theme in these types of legends that there's like these misfits or spiritual hooligans and they're being policed by beings like Indrid Cold (laughs) or that little white eyed girl. So there's actually a black eyed person story that follows that paradigm, and that's the one that I wanted to pick out from uh, Gary's book here. I'm just going to read this straight out of his book. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, in the United States, and this is where this event took place in February of 1988. My girlfriend, myself, and a couple of friends were out bar hopping on a Friday night, just having a good time. I ran out of cash, and I had to run to the ATM at the bank down the block. I made it to the ATM and withdrew some cash, and this was when things got weird. I turned around and I saw that across the street was a man leaning against the telephone pole on the corner. He was dressed well, in a black suit with an open collar maroon shirt. He was tall, white, with short jet black hair. I couldn't be sure at that distance, but I firmly believe that his eyes were completely jet black. The scariest part was that he was staring across this crowded intersection at me with this incredibly smug look on his face, which again, reminds me of the Devil in the Diner story.
0: Yeah, they know yeah. they are scaring the cramp out of you. Yeah.
1: I didn't want to hang around any longer than I had to, so I took off at a quick pace back toward the club where my friends were. After several yards, I allowed myself a glance backward, and I saw that he was following me across the street. I reminded myself that nothing could happen with people all around, but I didn't really believe it. I reached the club, but there was a line in front of the bouncer who was checking IDs, I stood there shaking with fear as I saw the man pause on the other side of the street, look both ways, and then calmly begin crossing toward me. Every move he made was precise and deliberate. I knew that when he got to me, something horrible was going to happen, and it was only with great effort that I managed to maintain my composure. Just then, another man walked up to me from the other direction. He was in his late 20s or early 30s, Wearing jeans, sneakers, a baseball cap, and a hooded sweatshirt from a local university. He touched me on the shoulder, and I immediately felt calmer. Then he said, don't worry, you're all right. We have everything under control. I glanced back at the man in the suit, and he had paused in the middle of the street. It's amazing that he wasn't run over. The sweatshirt man turned away from me to face the man in the suit. It was clear to me that this was a showdown. After a moment, the man in the suit sneered at us in frustration, it seemed, then turned around and walked away. The sweatshirt man turned back to me with a reassuring smile, patted my shoulder, and walked on. So that's pretty weird, right? Yeah. I mean, this guy is outside the club. There's this other guy stalking him. Possibly with all black eyes, and then another dude comes up who looks, looks like your average Joe. Which he said he felt calm the minute he touched him. Yeah, and told him everything was going to be okay. And that's, that's like that—that yeah. that sort of hidden undercurrent of activity.
0: That's the thing that you're like, you really don't know what's going on around you. Right. They didn't pull out giant chrome guns and start zapping uh, you yeah. know, uh, holes in the walls here. Yeah. It's really interesting because not a lot happens, but it's what well, we go back to. One of our new favorite uh, terms here, the personal experience, and that's the deep down feeling. And it's not always bad. It could be calm like this. I heard this kind of a great story being told. I think it was, maybe it was on Jim Harold's campfire about a guy being on the Queen Mary. And- There are these other uh, drunk folks that were taking the ghost tour and they were just loud and cackling and not taking it seriously. And what I love is that he started to get really irritated because they're ruining it for him. They're drowning out the tour guide, which I'm sure that they're used to that, just drunk people on the tour, but they're being really loud and disrespectful and making fun of everything and everybody. And he's just getting more and more agitated. And his wife is like, you know, just, you know, honey, it's okay. And he's like, no, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. They're ruining it. And then he felt this hand on his shoulder. The feeling that he got was that it's a woman, but there's no one there. he couldn't see a hand. All the tension and irritation just melted away suddenly. And he felt so calm and forgiving and relaxed. And that's a positive experience that, yeah, he looked around, there was nothing there. So he wasn't afraid because it was a very calming, peaceful experience, but it just made him tolerate. Whoever was there is like, yeah, I know, they're a bunch of drunk idiots. Right. Don't worry about it. We got this. And... What I would love is that they get spooked later on. Yeah. Yeah, what's going on here? Is it some kind of showdown or just a policing to move on, buddy? You know, I'm here. Yeah. If you think it was a cop tailing somebody, it would have been a different interaction. If he was harassing the guy, it's just something weird about it. If you take it to be a true story, if it's not a true story, then it's not a great piece of fiction, you know, because there's no great story elements to it. Right. It just kind of is what it is. Which, like the two bar stories, it's nothing spectacular. It's just a very odd thing. It's an odd moment in somebody's life. Exactly.
1: It's time to wrap up our series on Black-Eyed Kids. So you can all start sleeping normally. (laughs) And we can get back to our lives. Right. (laughs) It's been a lot
0: deeper subject than I anticipated. It usually is when we go to tackle something that we've heard stories about, but don't know much about the lore. And this one is kind of wispy. It's a vapor. You're trying to grab something that it's not that concrete. It's unlike shadow people in that, yeah, I believe a lot of that could be just physiological. Because, again, I've experienced a little bit of it myself. So I know what that's like and the differences. And then when you hear the other story, it's like, okay, that goes way beyond what I experienced. And there's different things going on. But that's documented in a way that this phenomenon is not. So all we have are these stories. And I don't believe we will ever get any kind of concrete proof, which to a lot of people is frustrating or vindication that it's fake or a relief.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing that's been interesting is we recently started a Facebook group and I don't know why we hadn't started it sooner. I mean, we had a page, <laughs> yeah. but Tess was like, well, you know, we should make a group. And I said, well, I'm not admin in that. And she said, I'll do it. And, and so yeah. it's between her, her and Quade, Her yeah. and Quade, yeah, who's a member of the Astonishing Research Corps. They're both uh, adminning it, and it's 99.9% extremely well-behaved, and we're, we're very <laughs> glad that. about that. Yes, we um, well, of course. Like yeah. everything
0: else, you've got that 0.1%. Yes,
1: yeah. but the thing that it's allowed us to do is interact with and see what listeners are thinking about the shows as They're going on. Although next year we're going to try and be better about this. Yeah. Since we're generally producing the show uh, 12 hours before it needs to be posted. Hey, it's fresh, (laughs) folks. It's really hot off the uh, press here. It really is. It's Thursday, just to give you an idea. This part of the parts of this show we're recording right now, it's Thursday, November 9th. This show needs to go up by the end of this coming weekend and requires sound design and editing between now and then. (laughs) Right. Sorry, Sarah, and sorry, Ryan. But I did want to mention something that came up on the Facebook group page which I thought was really important. One of our listeners there, who's a member of the group, she posted the following message that I wanted to share. So listening to the Black Eyed Kids episode, and it's kind of breaking my heart. I'm a mom of a kid on the spectrum, and although he's high-functioning and doesn't run away, a lot of autistic kids who don't seem right and wear funny clothes do run away, especially at night while their parents are sleeping. And then they get lost and don't know what the appropriate thing to do is. I would just hate for someone to turn one of those kiddos away because of superstition. I guess just look for all black eyes. Now, that post I thought was very heartfelt, and we have to remember that one of the stories that we read earlier on in the series was from a listener who wrote into us who had three boys, and his middle one was autistic, and that was yeah. the boy that saved him from the black-eyed kid.
0: Yeah, and if just as a refresher, I think the most interesting thing is that this child, the middle child, Isaac was in the den. He wasn't even at the door. He didn't even know he who was at the door. He came running in. Yeah, yeah like, he don't let them it. in. No, he sensed it from wherever he was.
1: Yeah, so that's pretty fascinating. There was an ensuing, very heartfelt and intriguing conversation on the Facebook group after this post amongst a lot of the different members who had relatives on the autism spectrum. And while it seemed that most of them agreed, myself included, because I've known several autistic kids personally, these kids are not frightening. And they're pretty easy to pick out as being special kids. The primary point being that that they don't have all black eyes and there's no circumstances where they would have that. And the reason I wanted to point this out is because we have a responsibility to our listeners to remind you, these are spooky stories that we're sharing here. This is entertainment and everyone has to use their own judgment when someone comes to your door asking for help, especially a child. You're always gonna have to make an assessment of your own if that situation should arise because these kids who are on the autism spectrum, they do get out sometimes as she said in the middle of the night, they wander away from their homes and a lot of times they don't communicate in traditional ways. But again, they're not going to have all black eyes, fill you with a sense of dread, and then also show up in groups of two, both acting the exact same way. And many other people
0: have made the point that kids on the spectrum, or adults on the spectrum, will avoid eye contact and shy away. That's right. From looking at you directly, but even when somebody's not looking at you directly, you can get a sense that their eyes are normal, even if they're kind of darting around. And I could see their behavior being taken as odd, but... Again, the two biggest factors here, one, eventually the black eyed kids make eye contact with you. And that's when people see that they have all black eyes. And it's not just the eyes are missing. In Isaac's story that we just referenced there, there seem to be voids. It's hard to explain. It's not just these they're hollow sockets. The way the, I pictured it in the story was that these are just black voids where eyes should be. So... So that's one thing, the eyes. The second thing, and this is one thing that's really hard to relay to people who've never experienced it for themselves, which is this deep down fear. It's not like, oh, I feel kind of weird, or this kid's acting weird, and you get a weird feeling, or you see the person kind of acting up in a public place, and you're like, oh, I don't want to be near that. It's a thousand times worse than that, the feeling of fear. It's hard for anybody to relay that to you, what that's like, and it's hard to express it. Because it's a personal thing. You can't make somebody feel like that to demonstrate it. You have to experience it yourself. And if you haven't, I don't think you'll ever get it.
1: Well, you said something earlier to me uh, when we weren't recording that I thought was a really poignant way of looking at it was that if there's any of you out there that have a phobia, when you're overcome with whatever that particular phobia is, and maybe it's an irrational fear of something as simple as a spider or a snake, which right. are things that you should be afraid of certain well, we, species. Yeah, that's but, the thing is
0: that we all have a fear of that, this fear that's hard to explain or relay to other people and for other people to experience. But how many people out there listening right now have a genuine phobia? It's like what Scott said, I think, way back in the What's Got an in India episode about the bug in your ear. And Scott, you know, was saying, like, well, these spiders are cute. You can play with them. The, you know, the I drop a spider onto your face while you're sleeping and you wake up and there's a spider crawling across your face, you're going to have a reaction. Yeah. Unless you're a spider wrangler and you're really used to that. <laughs> Most people will freak out. Most people do not like spiders. and They don't like snakes. And some people are fine with them. But if you have a phobia, a genuine phobia, or it could be anything else. I know somebody who has trouble crossing bridges. If you think about it, here in LA, the 10 to the 110 interchange or going from a uh, the 405 to the 90, you know, there's some really tall interchanges here where you're up about 70, 80 feet in the air. And yeah, you down, I always it's, it's think about, I don't like that either. I always think about earthquakes
1: and, well, you yeah. know, because I yeah. remember in the Northridge quake, because I lived here for the Northridge quake, I left for 10 years and came back. But I remember the highway patrolman, the bridge collapsed yeah, and that's he right. ran right off the end and died. Yeah,
0: it was real early in the morning. And it was on a motorcycle. dark. Yeah. yeah. He just ran off. He didn't know that part of it had collapsed. But the point being is that, yeah, those things are kind of scary to everybody, but There are people who are scared to be like in a boat underneath a bridge. And it is kind of looming and huge. And there's all kinds of other phobias that people have. And if you don't have any kind of phobia at all about anything, well, you're blessed. But for those of you who do have some kind of phobia and suddenly you're faced with that and you totally freak out, you know, people may even laugh at you if it's something they think is kind of silly. I mean, we've seen all the uh, the mori type shows where people are afraid of jello and then horribly they bring out a tray of jello and watch these people freak out. Yeah. If you've never had anything like that, you will never understand what that fear is like. And if you do, you're getting now into the ballpark of what that kind of deep down freak out fear is like. However, when they experience it, they can't move. It's all that fear of you wanting to run and hide and get away as quickly as you can but you can't. You're frozen. You feel compelled to obey. That's what people talk about when they talk about these stories.
1: Now, coming back to one last possible medical explanation that we definitely have to touch on, this was something brought to our attention by email from uh, listener Cormac Kelly. And Cormac had dug up this medical condition, which I had not heard of before, called anaphthalmia. So what this is, is an ultra rare medical condition where children can be born without eyes. Now, for us, it's An unlikely culprit in the case of the black-eyed kids because it's only present in three out of every 100,000 births, and it's widely associated with other severe conditions that would likely preclude the kids being able to show up on your doorstep and ask to use the phone. Additionally, their eyes don't necessarily appear black, but the eye tissue may be completely absent or only partially developed, and this condition is a result of a genetic abnormality. You can imagine the statistical odds of having two kids with this particular condition show up anywhere, frankly. With, with
0: both eyes, yeah. which are now basically two blind kids.
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting look at a possible medical explanation for this appearance, but it, it doesn't connect with these stories, really. So in conclusion, a lot of stories have come in, and we're going to be sharing some of them that we have permission to share on Patreon. We've gotten at least a dozen emails. Not everybody says it's okay. We have to make sure, but yeah. we'll be sharing those with our patrons on Patreon as a bonus content. Some of them are written more eloquently than others. Some of them do have an, an air of fictionality to them. Others, in others, you can tell that people were genuinely terrified, and when they relay the story, you can sense that fear. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things that Vasey mentioned in our interview with him earlier in tonight's show was the Highgate vampire story, which it's funny to me because we just got an email or a request on Twitter to cover that. No, yeah, not right, more than, yeah. like, last week. That like, happens
0: quite a bit, though. I know, there, there's right, some as, Vasey, yeah, right as he was
1: talking about it almost, somebody who couldn't have known that was like, you should cover the Highgate vampire. When he talked about the idea of this thing being made up and these two guys trying to one-up each other with the details and then all these people getting into it, and maybe it manifested. Now I know we've talked about this before, so we don't yeah. have to. We don't want to beat it to death with. Right.
0: It, we conjured it, but you told me that one. Yeah,
1: yeah, but it is an interesting idea. And it, are we creating this thing ourselves? And what if it is possible that there's a relationship between? folklore and imaginary presence of things that suddenly starts to become a little bit more real or maybe not even real. Maybe it's still a mental image or something that people are experiencing. So it's not real by our definition of I can touch and feel it, but it's still real in terms of it's making an impression on your senses. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Is it possible? It's the kind of thing that skeptics, well, they've turned this episode off a long time ago, but <laughs> but there's no way to quantify it. It's just something that we can speculate on and we just have to say, well, yeah, there's that possibility. Right. Or not. It's just completely absurd. You have to decide for yourself. And that's what we always try to do. Other people have said, well, it's mistaken identity. Brian Bethel was confused. It was a couple of kids that legitimately wanted money. Maybe they were high on something and- confused about when the movie started, and they snuck out from their ne'er-do-well parents' homes, and they're banging on windows trying to get a quarter or well, a ride or something. Well, that's the thing. They didn't ask for his
0: money. They yeah. wanted to get their own. So that at least they're conscientious that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, we got this. Uh, we have the uh, $3.50. If he remembers it correctly, and I believe he does. Yeah. There are people that have contacted us, that have interacted with us on various platforms, that still refute the things that we say, like, well, no, as far as we know in our research and other researchers and people who've written books have pointed out, it's not that. Like, it's not a 1990s internet hoax, does not seem to be, but they go back to that again. Like, no, 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 this is just a 1990s internet hoax. They like, keep saying it over and over. <laughs> it's, right, yeah. They keep refuting and bringing up the same points. And it's like, well, I don't know how many different ways we can explain this. It doesn't seem to be. So you're entitled to believe whatever you want. We're not trying to make you believe these stories. We're just presenting them and we're telling you what we think about them. But there's no obligation to believe what we think. Yeah. There's just Mm -hmm. an opinion. It's Halloween. Well, it's always a good time, especially going into winter for spooky stories. So that's all these are. You can take them however you want. But if you're going to assert that... Well no, it's just a hoax. Is that because you've done the research and you yourself can find proof that this is where it started? Or is that just something you'd rather believe because it makes you feel better? If you believe that these people with these heartfelt stories are just misremembering them to fit the lore that they've heard, is that because you know them personally and you've heard their story and you know them and their motivations? Or maybe you're even a psychologist? That has studied their case? Or are you just guessing at that? So, yeah, you can say that, but what's your statement based
1: on? Well, I felt like Brian Bethel's story was very compelling, frankly. He is now a member of our Facebook group that we mentioned (laughs) earlier. He's having a
0: lot of fun in there. Yeah,
1: he's been posting a lot and interacting with people. And, you know, some people have implied, as I said a few minutes ago, that he mistook a couple of weird kids for something. I want to remind everyone that's listening something that Forrest has said frequently over the course of the series. Brian's a journalist, He's a trained observer. It's what we call a trained observer.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, in court, that makes a difference. If you go to court and you said, I wasn't speeding, well, we have the cop here. It's like, well, it's his word against mine, it's like, well, guess what? The court's going with the word of the cop because he's a trained observer. That's right. He's been taught to
1: guess how fast a car is going. He actually probably took a class on it.
0: And you're just a guy trying to deny that.
1: Yeah, so that's what I think about Brian's story. But there and again, we have to ask, you know, what could these things be? If they are real, let's go ahead and say, well, they are real. And I think even in the case of this being a very real scenario, I do believe that the water is very muddy. I think there's a lot of stories that are fictional. I do believe that it's possible that people are – in some cases, looking back on something and going, was this a black-eyed kid or, you know, yeah, no, I think no, that's I, I definitely happening. Right.
0: So I don't mean to, as I said earlier, yeah. when people are accusing every story of being that, you're just misremembering that. No, I think that's possible. Yeah. Well, you may have already turned that off before hearing me say this, but right. no, I do believe that some of these stories could be people like, wow, that really creeped me out. I wonder if that was a black-eyed kid. And I didn't get a good look at their eyes, but man, I just felt so weird. And maybe that does happen. I fully believe that that does happen. But again, one of my favorite sayings is that all these stories don't have to be true. Just one has to be true. Yeah. For the phenomenon to mean something relevant in our world. Well, one of the things that Vasey said, again, regarding like what they
1: might actually be, is that he thought they were demonic and it right. was his idea that they were demonic. And he actually mentioned the hierarchy of demons, which I thought was fascinating. I took a look at that today. It's not something I knew a whole lot about. There's well over 100,000 different demons. There's various guides that tell you... you
0: <laughs> did you go to Tobin's spirit guide? Yeah, it's yeah. like that. Yeah, you know, know, it who's is the like big that.
1: boss? You right. know, Who are the weak little ones? It's very uh, sort of uh, tabletop gaming, really, yeah. that, in terms of they have these different powers and these different influences and who's the boss and who's royalty and who isn't? And it's very fascinating. Right. And I and thought what Vasey said about, you know, these black-eyed ones being low-level, and in the case of the story of the girl with the white eyes, that that's a higher, more powerful demon. And then when right. I asked him, are, well, are they nice guys? And he said, well, they can be good or bad or indifferent. Indifferent, But they right. have a power over humanity that's yeah. going to be there no matter what their disposition is. Right. You know,
0: so... Well, and then I, there's different forms... So it's kind of like our story, The Sludge Entity. That's just a black sludgy mist with long tendrils. And from what has been described by the people who study these things and do battle with them is that it's a lower form. Right. It's not like Pazuzu, where he's the demon and he's plotting things and disasters and all that are happening. It's just a lower form that kind of sucks up energy where it can, and it resides in a very specific place. And it can be dealt with. But can these kids be dealt with or they do they need to be policed? And what's interesting is that, again, it goes back to the eyes. There's something about the eyes. What is that? What is so universal in this world and the next about eyes? Well, and you know what's curious about the eyes? That ties us
1: into another theory that we can't complete this series without mentioning, but there's a whole group of people that think that black-eyed kids are, are you ready for this? Yeah, Alien-human
0: hybrids. Oh, no, that's one of the bigger theories. Yes. It's one of the more popular theories, I'll say.
1: Yeah, yeah. is it popular? Did
0: you, You've done some research? Well, there. no, I think actually, David Weatherly says that. The two most yes, popular he does. That's are, true. Uh, I think, number one on the top 10 list here, the top five list, is demons. Now it sounds like family feud. Yeah. Number two coming in, ding, alien-human hybrids, because the patterns that I see are that some people describe similar things with alien abduction. Not only the large, giant, black, shiny marble eyes that are huge, but there's also that feeling of evil, not to this degree. This is slightly different, but they're connected. So people make those connections. Is this alien light? Are these kind of minions of these larger greys or these other nefarious types of uh, aliens that people have described seeing and, and being abducted by. and
1: Are they confused yeah. because they've been interbred?
0: And they don't <laughs> know right. what they are themselves. Uh, look, if you have uh, the powers of aliens, I think you would get better clothes for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or they'd be cleaner, you know, like there's, well, there's got to be like a sonic shower on board the ship. It's hard to say, but is that theory any crazier than the other ones? Well, I think it just goes to what your preferences are. In your belief structure with this kind of subject matter
1: i guess i just feel like if there's alien human hybrids if they
0: exist i don't think this is how they're introducing themselves to society (laughs) well no on on the nice flip side now you're getting into crystal children and you know there's a whole branch there where They're positive beings, but they're lovely children, but have slightly larger eyes than most humans, but not freakish. They're not big, black, glassy things. Usually they're described as big blue eyes, but these are cute children that are abnormally intelligent don't fit in with society, but don't give you the deep down heebie-jeebies either. Like I said, if they're mixing people and aliens,
1: I don't think that they're showing up poorly dressed in the middle of the night in a <laughs> right. storm. I think they're probably
0: already playing with little Timmy on the playground at your school. Yeah, and you got no idea. Well, yeah, that seems to make more sense if they're trying to infiltrate rather than you know. If you believe any of this <laughs> at all, they come in and they want your cocoa.
1: Please, I'm not taking this personally. Sometimes when we react to something that someone said on social media, it's because we're a very interactive show. Yeah, and we pers- personally interact with our listeners. And when we respond to them either positively or if it's somebody that's made a troll-like statement or whatever, we're not feeling bad. We We don't don't need you to worry about us. It's kind of meta what I'm saying right now, but you don't have to worry... (laughs) About sure. us being upset because we're saying that somebody said something negative, you know, on social media somewhere. No, ex- That's just the nature of the beast. Exactly. And we're fine with it.
0: But I'll say a lot of times, even people with constructive criticism make good points. Yes, absolutely. And, and so we do think about that. I mean- Every show, just, every yeah. episode's a lesson, believe me. Sure. But Apparently no- Apparently uh, not in how to get shorter, <laughs> but- uh, <laughs> Well, there's so much material. It's like between all the the forms of social media, we try and- go through everything and see all the comments and all the letters and I gotta say we probably get to 98-99% of them Yeah, we don't have we time do to respond through. to everything Yes, exactly But we
1: do look at everything that comes right, in we, as much as we
0: can Absolutely If the, somebody makes a good point or, well, this seems to come up a lot we should address this Well, the reason that I said that
1: just now was because somebody was like stop saying if you believe any of this at all and it's like I'm not saying that <laughs> because right. I don't have courage in our content I'm saying it because it's on our coffee cup <laughs> it's a, which you can buy yeah, in our store Yeah. No, which just, by the way Okay, we've Great. sold out 145 of them
0: gone oh, already very nice. there's a few left but we're ordering another batch well Scott's son is gonna be making paper mache ones it, yeah it, it, it's <laughs> on. but no one has any firm answers there are people who are authors and investigators who I think have better ideas and conclusions than we do and so we draw from that but the rest of us out here we're just discussing kind of fun stuff that's kind of spooky but thought-provoking It's just a big discourse, which is the goal that we always had from the beginning. And to do it with a friendly tone that's respectful to everybody, that goes both ways. So
1: getting back around to our final thoughts on the Black Eyed Kids, after that patented tangent, I did want to say I don't believe that this all started with the Usenet message boards becoming creepypasta websites. And I might have thought that initially, and that's what a lot of people seem to continue to think. In spite of all the evidence that we've put forth, that stories about these kids certainly predate something that happened in the mid-90s or even the early 90s by decades, we found evidence of children matching these descriptions going back thousands of years, present in multiple cultures all over the world from recent history to the pre-Christian era. We heard the stories of the Duendes in Mexico or in Latin American culture. We got multiple emails about that. We told you about the Octon. We told you about the Meelings in our earlier episodes. And if you can't remember what they were, you can go back and check those out. These are all independent developments of very, very similar types
0: of kids, and they all predate creepy pasta. <laughs> right. In every corner of the world, I'll bet you'll find some variation, and they don't all act exactly the same. In Southeast Asia, they have a very strong tradition of shadow people and spooky children like that taking people's lives and seeing them as a bad omen, and you're soon to not be of this world. So a lot, every, a lot of
1: people have seen The Ring, I'm sure.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah, that's a story set up artifice that's uh, a little too much like a fairy tale curse thing but these other ones that have the context of people that uh, have suddenly disappeared that's another story I read the neighbor saw this guy let into kids he couldn't see the eyes but he got a weird feeling the neighbor was letting them in and then the neighbor disappears these are anecdotal in nature but as Scott just said they go all over the world and they go back a lot longer than the internet look It's impossible
1: to verify these tales, really, just as it's impossible to verify any story of the unexplained that you don't personally experience or, alternatively, has left behind some irrefutable and unexplainable trace evidence. And with special effects being what they are now, you can't even trust photographs or video anymore. On the plus side, one aspect of the legend says that once you know about black-eyed kids, you're far more likely to encounter them. But in the end, you've got to rely on your instinct, and maybe yours is telling you, This is all a bunch of hooey and that's fine you're entitled to that opinion we welcome civil discourse on these topics from all sides of belief but if you don't believe black-eyed kids are real then just be sure and ask yourself this is that because you've rationally weighed all of the evidence anecdotal though it may be and you've concluded it was a myth born from modern culture like slender man which by the way is easily traced to its origin
0: Or do you refuse to believe because as much as you don't want to admit it, somewhere deep down inside, you're terrified that black-eyed kids are in fact very real.
1: That's going to wrap up our series on the Black-Eyed Kids. We'll be back next week with Chasing Earhart project creator Chris Williamson, whose knowledge base about Amelia
0: Earhart proves our series on her three years ago was just the tip of the iceberg. Please remember to support our sponsors. And if you'd like to attend our meetup in L.A. on December 2nd, RSVP on Facebook or via email to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Special thanks to John Bolin.
1: Hi. I'm Maxie. I'm Isaiah.
0: I'm Sarah BC, and I give permission to... Science! to so use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide. Science!
1: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel,
0: and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess good night hey guys i'm home jake judson Mother, thank you for listening. Thank you for letting us in.